Welcome back to the Pod of Greed. That is right. First episode of the new year. That's right. 2024. So, uh, sorry that we're late again this week on this. Don't worry. This we're gonna is the last right time. We're going to get right back on schedule. Next week, we will, be, we will be back to uploading on Thursday mornings. It'll be fine. Just a lot of holiday. Cheer. Cheer. Travel. Everything. However, there's no shortage of new and exciting Yu-Gi-Oh! news. I say that actually that kind of is a bit of a shortage of news. I mean... But there's a lot yeah. of other stories in this podcast. I yeah, think that'll be. Yeah, we're not just card game players. We're more than that. Yeah. Oh, there is. There's a fair bit of Yu-Gi-Oh and some other card game like things. I did snatch a few. I did. So yeah, I'm interested in that. But first and foremost, I have a review from us. Uh, yeah. From us? Well, not or for us. Oh. From Apple Podcasts. So um, this comes to us from. It's our first one out of five. Actually, they don't have a name. It's just leave a five star review is their name. So <laughs> username. My favorite podcast. I've only just got back into Yu-Gi-Oh! in 2022 when Master Duel came out, and I wasn't caught up with any Yu-Gi-Oh! knowledge until I found this podcast. I listen in every week at work, and it makes time fly so much faster. I love the fun and honesty you two have about the subjects you talk about. Thanks for making such an authentic and entertaining podcast for everyone to enjoy. Fire emoji. And he left Mm. five stars. So thank you, leave a five-star review. I mean, that's what you always tell them. You do yeah. always tell them. But it's okay to leave a one-star review. Paul will understand. So, yeah, if you guys listen to the podcast on any different podcast site, we're on uh, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, definitely leave a leave a positive review. It really yeah. helps. Helps us uh, get up in the charts and stuff like that. And speaking of leaving us things, uh, we need more questions for our pot over here. So go ahead and head on down to that Google form. Yeah, I got a Google form. It's down in the description and the show notes. You guys can... You can ask us anything. We did refill it before this episode, and there are some interesting questions that I'm hoping maybe will pop up in here. But we really enjoyed uh, emptying out the pot, so we're going to need to have plenty of questions So when we do that again. Yeah, very much looking forward to that. Okay, so let's get started with the Yu-Gi-Oh, huh? All right, Yu-Gi-Oh! No new sets released. That's the first Yeah, not not a new set. I mean, obviously, I guess it makes sense. It was like the holidays. (laughs) People weren't really... Going to be able to buy a new set, although I guess if Konami had their way, they'd probably try to get you to buy one. Right now, Konami's counting their dollars. Um, Yeah, they probably are. I wonder how Yu Gi Oh! like just in 2023 ended up doing. We won't know until March or something when Q4 sales numbers. Well, yeah, once those numbers come out, then we'll have a better idea. And my suspicion is just like. Fine. Rarity Collection probably carried pretty hard (laughs) towards the end of the year. That's probably a really popular gift, actually. Like, just for people and getting box of rarity collection for the Yu Gi Oh player in your life. But, uh, I mean, it's it's an easy buy. Actually, I will, I know, like, we've sung its praises a billion times, but, um, the fact that you can get there's three particular staples that we have actually been using a bit recently um, triple tactics talent, infinite impermanence, and like ash blossom. Just the fact that you can just grab that set and just get those cards so good in, in just you know, exuberant numbers. So you can just like fill them in and all that and stuff. It's a really, really good time. Um, we actually were playing some Yu-Gi-Oh just the other, like last night. Yeah, yeah, we were. Mm-hmm. Some closer to modern Yu-Gi-Oh, which is rare for us. Yeah, at least we don't talk about it much. Um, I was using Vanquish Soul, and I was playing Snake Eyes. Yeah, and we just had a good time, like yeah. physical and you know, just in person, face to face. When I could cards. summon my dear Bell Star, I had a good time. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't me stopping you from doing it. You, you asked one of my wanteds. You know what you did. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was a cool time. Um, someone's car is going off in the parking lot. It's like not mine. I don't care. Well, hopefully, guys, uh, that doesn't interrupt too badly for you. But anyways, yeah. So, we had a pretty good time. It definitely just reminded me that, like, Triple Tactics 
talent is such a fun card for casual yeah. play. The we because we we talked about it and. What was weird was what I enjoyed the most about our games was using Triple Tactics Talent and Imperm both retroactively and proactively, and it did not in any way feel like it ruined our game. Yeah, I think, um, you know, not to get, like, too into the nitty-gritty of card design here, but um, I definitely think that, like, cards like Imperm and cards like um, Triple Tactics Talent have... While I, I know that, like, in the very competitive sphere, people might have, like, their qualms with triple tactics in particular. It can be pretty polarizing. But, um, yeah, I think, like, triple tactics talent does a good job of, um, like, allowing both people to interact and play mm -hmm. without feeling. So, it's like, if your opponent does do something in your turn, you can use it and, like, keep playing or yeah. kind of turn the tables or whatever. So, I don't uh, know. I find that to be pretty cool. It does. It may do a little too much, but... Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, had, I had a good time using it with more modern cards. Yeah, so just a little update on that. But more importantly, Maze of Millennia is going to be the first set that drops this year. Mm. It's coming out in just a couple of weeks. So um, very soon. I We got one big new reveal for it. Or kind of new reveal. Earl. These Fighting Flame Swordsmen. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the new... The new Flame Swordsman and the Fusion Monster. Yeah, there's a Flame Swordsman, there's a Fusion Monster. I thought this was a pretty neat, like, little pair of cards. Um, I know with the Maze of Millennia, or, well, Ma what was the first one called? Maze, Maze of, of Memories. Maze, yeah, Maze of Memories was first, and now it's Maze of Millennia. Which, yes. These cards are hard to say. Yeah, they are. But, um, <laughs> or these names, they're hard to say. But, yeah, I mean, you know, kind of just make this a more interesting pack, I think, if you're, like, an anime, mm. kind of anime viewer sort of person where, like, you... You see these products come out, and, like, there's no, like, where it's, like, the anime cards, right? And yeah, so this that, is, con that immediately connects to something that you know. So these are these have become sort of the anime things, because last year it was, like, Gate Guardian, and, like, we got the new, the Blackluster Soldier. Which I think they did a pretty good job with Gate Guardian. Uh, is it competitive? No. But. But pretty fun. Still a functioning Gate Guardian deck, which and we so could never say before. Here we're getting Fighting Flame Swordsman. Also, I forgot the Earthbound Immortal kind of support is in here like these, these earthbound prisoner cards oh yeah called. the kind of and expanded like earthbound, earthbound support but there are still meta cards as well there's like um bonfire is going to be in here i know yep. that's a pretty big Searches one is a level four lower uh pyro, pyro yeah your power road and also transaction rollback which which one's allow it's this new trap it allows you to um reuse like trap effects or oh something like God. that. That's finally coming out. You told me yeah. about that months ago. Sorry, pay half your life points, target a normal trap in your opponent's grave. This effect becomes that trap's effect. And you can also banish this from your grave to target a normal trap in your grave and use that trap's effect. So it's very useful for like a labyrinth deck in particular. They can mm -hmm. search it pretty easily and like recycle this thing. So it's supposed to help them kind of maybe jump a tier or so. Maybe not a tier, but like jump in viability. So gotcha. Not that they weren't viable. Which, before, yeah, they they've been so viable for vi viable for okay. a minute. But yeah, so that's going to be coming out pretty soon, and then shortly after uh, Maze of Millennia comes the next story in our uh, little podcast here. That's the Yu-Gi-Oh two-player deck. Oh, I thought we were talking about Phantom Nightmare. Oh yeah, that's not till February. Dang. Sorry, we got to go through some negativity first. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, the Yu-Gi-Oh! two-player decks, we still don't actually have full reveals for these products, so we don't know exactly nope. what's in them, but we did get a little bit more of a look at them. And, um, We're now more confused than ever. Yeah, now people kind of are not entirely happy. So 
basically we got a little preview of a few of the cards from like one of the Konami social media pages. And we saw uh, Dark Magician. Makes sense. We saw Elemental Hero Sparkman. That's okay. We saw Swords of Revealing Light. We saw Magic Cylinder. All right. These are okay. Yeah. So for those who may or may not know, um, these are the kind of beginner onboarding kind of two-player products they're supposed to be releasing. They're going to have like a a follow-along kind of manga story thing that you You kind of dual to to it. Um, I'm very interested in these products. We've expressed that pretty readily in the past that these are, I'm always interested in like, what is Yu-Gi-Oh doing to pull in the new faces, teach them the game. It's an uphill climb at times. People saw this and they were not super happy about it though. I saw a lot of backlash about this on Reddit and some on Twitter where people are like, you know, what are they doing? These these cards suck. Like, why are they trying to teach Yu-Gi-Oh! with Elemental Hero Sparkman in 2024? And... Paul, I think you left the card out. Oh, what else was there? There was one more card in that list. Oh, okay. Eldritch, the Golden Lord. Oh, yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, should, I have to mention that. Okay, so we knew Eldritch was going to be in there because he'd been mm. revealed a little while before. So, yeah, Eldritch is also in there, so it kind of feels a little... Like, what is this? Whiplashy? Like, <laughs> what, what kind of deck is going to use, like, Dark Magician, but then also, like, Eldlit? And then, like, I remember people saw, like, Zeus and Manadium um, Prime Heart as... Oh, yeah, they were on the box the, art. Yeah, like, the box art um, headliner monsters. It seems like it's a bit of a, a, a mishmash product. It's a Frankenstein of a product. I'm And I find myself a little bit in the middle. So some people are saying, like, this is a terrible thing. Like, just the product sucks because, like, this isn't what modern Yu-Gi-Oh! is, right? No one was playing Elemental Hero Sparkman even 10 years ago. That's so, you know, why is it in here? Why are you, like, printing these useless vanillas? Um, and also, it kind of feels like, okay, there's maybe some DM pandering with, like, Dark Magician just thrown in there. Gotta so have them. sake of. But then also, like, how is it going to teach you summoning mechanics realistically for you, like, using these vanilla cards? Like, where does the Zeus and the Manadium Prime Heart come in? And we won't know until the product comes out. So, like, it's the best we can do now is conjecture. Um, and it's not great. Conjecture is not great. But what do you, I mean, just having seen, like, kind of Magic Cylinder again, sort of feeling light, like, how does it make you feel for the product? I feel much the same as kind of the general discourse. Just very confused on the direction and goal of this product mm-hmm. because I think we all we, we all made our own assumptions of what this product is, and these reveals have kind of confirmed we're wrong. Um, because yeah. it can't be the, the goal of the product can't be to bring you up to speed on modern Yu Gi Oh! because I'll, I mean, at least most of the cards we've seen now are anything but modern Yu-Gi-Oh. We yeah. know there are modern cards in it, and but then why are we going all the way back to 2005, back to 2002? Yeah. I, I don't get it. I So, it's tough because in order to teach certain elements of Yu-Gi-Oh, a few cards probably have to be in there in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Like, in order to teach how attack points work, you've got to have a 1,500 attack point monster and, like, a 1,600 attack point monster to swing over the 1,500 attack point monster. Like, on a baseline level, you have to have that. But they could use an 18 and a 19. But they could use, a, like, maybe higher stat total monsters. I guess the hard, the harder part for me is what would teach best? And it's, like, I don't know that I have an answer because... This is a ragtag group of cards. I do think they probably could have been a little more cohesive or a little bit more modernized with their selection of them. We still don't even know what the full list is, so 
withholding some judgment that's gonna, there. That's going to be terrifying. But it kind of made me realize, I don't know if there's like an archetype or anything that would do a better job because so many archetypes are in their own little silo yeah, of how they, they specifically work. do their mechanic. They do their mechanic. Oftentimes it cheats a little bit. Like, you know, if you take your three favorite decks of the last few years, they probably kind of just dance to the beat of their own drum and yeah. don't really, like, they wouldn't really actually teach anyone Yu-Gi-Oh! super well. So, like, for instance, you know, we were playing, like, the like Vanquish Soul. That's, like, a deck that's got a very unique mechanic, like a set of mechanics. Mm-hmm. The monsters bouncing and revealing and stuff. And no other archetype plays like it. But that's almost kind of the issue. Is like, no other archetype plays like it. So, I can play, like, a Yu-Gi-Oh! kind of beginner-level starter deck. But then the moment I sit down to play against someone who's using Vanquish Soul, it just won't really, like feel resonant at all i feel like um mid-range decks especially struggle from that whole siloed strategy thing a lot of times our mid-range decks are all about just kind of gaining resources and repeating loops but these are extremely specific yeah these things mechanics are so unique like, to them combo decks are a bit more uh, in a weird way they're a bit easier to wrap your head around their difficulties come from a different place yeah their difficulty i think just comes from the combo is very long and you may not know where to stop it or like where to yeah. interact with it. But I think what you're saying about mid-range is true too, where like a lot of decks just they've got their gimmick. And if you don't understand how the gimmick works and like how it how each card plays mm-hmm. into it, you just it's like you, it, playing against them can be kind of borderline miserable. Because uh, yeah. Like you, you just don't know what anything does. And then like you get annoyed because you kind of like go walk right into like you know, a booby trap, but you also just never really knew how this archetype worked. Like Valence, it's that sort of thing. I think it's easier with um, control and combo decks because what because they are their gameplay style. It's more ubiquitous across multiple archetypes. Yeah, like a lot of trap based control decks, they essentially play the same. Yeah, you're kind of one for twoing with traps and stuff. Th- that's all that you want to do at the end of the day. Combo decks is just. Take keep little summoning. monsters, make them into big monsters, yeah, and as many of them as you can going. get. So I don't know like what this product would have to really do to accurately reflect that. Like I don't think that they want an entry level product to be a combo fest. Yeah, or like you know, <laughs> you and your friend who just kind of realize, oh, Yu Gi Oh is still a thing. Let me like try this thing out and ask you to memorize a, a twenty step combo, and you know. You gotta memorize the lines or whatever. I remember right? like, when the ice barrier structure deck came out, and that was too many combos for me from an from like an entry level product. I was like, okay, yeah. this is this deck just wants to combo into synchros, and I don't want to do all that. Yeah, so I'm not really sure, you know, how effective this will be. I do think though that it's not. I think that some people probably had the wrong idea about the product though. I think some people saw, like, the Zeus and thought that this was going to be a chance for them to, like, reprint a lot of meta staples in this product. And they're mm-hmm. maybe disappointed that, like, that this doesn't have reprints of more, like, extra deck cards. Like, maybe they should be throwing in, it, you know, more of them. It's another one of those consequences of us as the audience. We just, we see these teasers and reveals, and we get into our heads what we think they should, should be, be or what we want them to man. be. And it'll never be that, so we then we're disappointed. But and then it kind of feels like, oh, my Konami is like ignoring our fans. They're releasing these terrible products, and they don't know what people want. But in reality, I mean, yeah, like this, it is a two-player intro product, so it's really not meant for most of us mm-hmm. that are watching this podcast. Most of us don't have a friend to play with. Yu-Gi-Oh. 
Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I do, but, you know, like, would it have been nice for this sort of product to have, like, a lot of hand trap reprints, maybe throw in, like, a pot of prosperity, some, some triple tactics cards, mm. give you some imperms? Yeah, and I actually think that it probably could afford to have a few of them in there just in, because of what we were saying earlier, where, like, imperm and, like, triple tactics and stuff are the modern-day staples that, like, allow you to stay in the game and kind of tango a bit. That's how you play Yu-Gi-Oh! today. So I do hope to see, like, negation cards or something in here in, in some capacity. I'm but, not sure how you're going to negate my spark, man, but good luck. But, yeah, I, I don't think that this... <laughs> I don't think that this product was ever going to have, like, you know, your SP Little Knight, like, you know, in, in it. But wouldn't so, that be insane? Wouldn't it be good, though? <laughs> So we'll see. I mean, you can rest assured we will be getting our hands on these products when they come out. That's a fact. I would love to, um, you know, have a crack at these and see how it is that Konami intends to teach a person in 2024 how to play this crazy-ass game. I'm curious at what... I mean, is, like, is the goal to get them to modern Yu-Gi-Oh! or get them to Yu-Gi-Oh! You know, like... I wonder what well, the next step from this structure is intended to be. Because, like... One thing with a two-player product like this is, like, you can't really tell someone to, like, jump straight to Age of Overlord as the next product to buy, right? Nope, definitely not. Because, like, Age of Overlord, outside of being, like, a pretty, like, high meta set, it also, I mean, it's just a bunch of archetypes. Mm-hmm. So, like, jumping from the structure deck straight to playing or the Horus cards or, like, something, it's probably going to be Maybe you hard. jump to another structure deck, like the Fire King deck. Yeah, I think that could be good. If they point you towards that, that'd be great because the Fire King deck is kind of going to be the, the top contender for a bit or one of the top contenders. So that's there's something there, but I definitely worry, um, like like I do with all Yu-Gi-Oh! Like onboarding things, mm-hmm. it's like, where do you direct people next? I think that you're right that maybe just the Fire King structure, Trap Trick structure, mm-hmm. maybe even Jack Atlas if, if, mean, you, if you find that you're more into the combos. We, we've had some good structures lately, and... I think the hardest part for a lot of new players, what they 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 bought those structures and they're like, okay, I got this, but I actually don't know how to play this game. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, and I also I guess it's maybe there could be something with card shops. They could kind of have like a I don't know if they're planning to have like a launch event of some kind. Like, they, like they've done that sometimes with like starter and structure decks, but I don't I don't know that if I even sorry go ahead. I was gonna say I don't know how that works with a, with a product that's meant to be like a scripted game or maybe you don't play it scripted i don't know i also think like would people even because the people that come to car chapter probably more like regulars anyway like i don't know they need to learn how to maybe maybe the event would be bring a friend to the car shop konami would never i know and it's it's sad because like i know that they should do that i have told konami like reps that they should do that like bring a friend we talked about it last week like a league system like, oh, we did. Brought, we did. Whole, like, leaks. I mean, it's not like one to one, but yeah, like bring a friend and then teach them with the two player deck, and then you get a promo card as a reward. Yeah, you know, it would be insane. And like Konami should should really listen to me on this. Hear me out. So it's a bring a friend promotion. Mm. So you have to bring a friend to your card shop, and they have to sit down and play a game of Yu Gi Oh, a full match. Mm-hmm. And when they're done. You receive a copy of SP Little Knight. <laughs> you know, it's so crazy. Okay, so, like, we're, like, 
it sounds like satire. Like we're joking, kind of. Like, but do you know that would actually be like be huge? The, that would be so big. Like, like you know how many you know competitive types like who like I need my ass to go. They'll drag. Any, they will they'll drag, drag anybody. anybody. They'll drag. You don't, but you don't have to be competitive. A casual is like, wait, yeah, I can get an SP middle, middle night. Exactly. Grab anybody, but and if they have to play a game, yeah, then there is a chance and that there will be some actually retention. Enjoy it. Yeah, there will be some retention. I'm and sure the the, is, some people will just leave. Konami but like, can just do that. They can just print the card. It only has value <laughs> on the on the secondary market to them. It's just exactly. any other card. It's they could just do that. But it's a happy SP little night. It could so be crazy. just good, you good, very good staples. Yeah, that's like, so crazy. What if they did that? Th- th- it, you know that would that would certainly bring people to the shop. Like there's no, I mean, no I would way. Like fifty uh, percent royalties. Well, actually, he he deserves. You thought <laughs> like, it was your idea. It's Alex it's deserves a, a It's a killer idea. Yeah, I, it's kind of crazy. Like that would just instantly get people, you know, cheeks and seats. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's the ultimate goal. So anyway, I don't know. It's a it's a cool product. I will be playing with it. I hope that it goes over well. I hope that maybe the future reveals. There's at least. One or two more exciting little reprints just to kind of... Yeah. Just to get some of the established players into it. But at the end of the day, it's not a product for most of us. It's really more of a product for, like, little Jimmys. Yeah. So. Though they put that Zeus in there, so now they got us thinking. Yeah, so who knows. Uh, I think they got people a little bit riled up, and then maybe they feel like they haven't delivered yet. But we shall see, won't we? Okay, any other Yu-Gi-Oh! news? So I pulled up some OCG card reveals. I, I usually, Just because we have the pod is the only reason I bring these up. Normally, I don't pay too much attention to OCG reveals. Okay, but, um, highlights or themes? Yeah, so we got a new Earthbound card. Um, I didn't, is this separate, I guess, from the stuff that's yeah, in Mason? Yeah, this is Legacy of Destruction. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, so uh, you know, did you know Zone of the Spirits and Earthbound Immortal? I didn't. So I um, before I used that. I, you did. Okay. The new Zoma the Spirit is Zoma the Earthbound Spirit. Oh. And in the Earthbound Immortal archetype, you actually just need the name Earthbound. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have the Earthbound Immortal. So Yeah, because the new cards are like Earthbound Servants. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this thing is actually an Earthbound card, and it's but it's still much in the same vein as Zoma. It's a trap monster. Uh, you special summon it. It's Dark Level 4 Zombie, 1800 Attack, 500 Defense, Standard. But it has an effect. Monsters your opponent controls that can attack must attack this card. And if this card, special summoned by this card's effect, is destroyed by an opponent's attacking monster, you inflict damage to your opponent equal to double the original attack of the monster that destroyed it. Strange caveat, though. It's up to a maximum of 3,000. Oh, yeah, that's really bizarre. You know, I did read this card. Yeah, and I was like, like, why are they capping it at three? I guess it's a weird number. They just don't want your, like, an FTK, I suppose. I mean, like double is a big deal, but, like... Because I guess it'd be like some FTK where you give your opponent a monster or like you pump up their monster yeah. to like a billion attack and then force it to attack and stuff. That I, actually I would be very like doable. It'd be kind of funny if that could happen though. I know Konami's trying to play it safe, but I think they should get a little crazy. I feel like they sometimes. should at least make it maybe 4,000. 4,000 would be cool. Because like 3,000 means that the monster just has to have 1,500 attacks. It's not exciting anymore. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not not too impressive, but it is a Zoma reprint, and any decks that use trap monsters that use generic monsters like Zoma can make use of it. 
Yeah, I remember sure. we used to do that with Uriah back in the day, remember? Mm-hmm. True, true. That's Uriah, Lord of Searing Flames. I know a lot of y'all don't know about the old school. It's kind of crazy there are new people who probably have no fucking clue. <laughs> I was like, I don't care what this dumbass oh, beast card is. Oh, that reminds me. I don't have this in my list of stories, but you just triggered. I was looking for a Twitter post I saw earlier today. Um, so someone tweeted, I wonder what China's up to. And they post a deck list from a, because, uh, you know, they, we have the Asian English format now. Oh, okay. They posted a deck list. And they said, is that the Wicked Avatar? Oh, is that what they're playing and in China? So it was a, like a Nemalaria deck profile. Uh-huh. And it had a bunch of, ran- of seemingly random cards at weird ratios. Lots of two ofs, one of, some three ofs. And then there sitting at two of in the deck is the Wicked Avatar. And the strategy of the deck was to just get the, summon the Wicked Avatar as fast as possible and the Wicked Avatar essentially has a Cold Wave-esque effect for multiple turns. Oh, and so that's what they were abusing. Yeah. Interesting. Like, just, it's a, it's a wild format out there, y'all. Yeah, I I mean, it's kind of cool having now played with those Asian English decks. I guess they're trying to, you know, pump Yu-Gi-Oh out a little bit more over there. So it's cool to see that they, there's now a new group of people. There's a lot of experimentation. Out, yeah, um, like experimenting with different you stuff. Know, we used to think that we here in the TCG were at the cutting edge of Yu-Gi-Oh, but we're not playing the Wicked Avatar. We're not. Uh, we're not. We're not using Nemalarias. Yeah. That okay. So that also reminds me that um, when we did those like Blue Eyes Dark Magician decks, some people in the comments were actually from those territories were actually like giving their feedback on how much they did or didn't like the products, and mm-hmm. they were saying that while they liked the products, that they kind of wanted. They really more so wanted to get, like, modern cards. That makes sense. So that was kind of an interesting insight I'd read. Because uh, there is a chance, because it is a different territory from the U.S., and the culture is different. And the way they might experience Yu-Gi-Oh! It can also be different. In the West, yeah. we're more nostalgia-driven, so a Blue Eyes and Dark Mission product makes a lot of sense. But is that the same well, in those Asian territories? Yeah, for them, I think they wanted to just get caught up with how the game is mm-hmm. being played. And so for them... Now, not to say that everybody felt this way, but just it was a a sentiment that I'd seen. This is a question that I kind of wonder about is uh, how, because every territory, because we talked a bit about um, how they experience you, how we our experience with Yu Gi Oh players in Europe. Mm-hmm. I wonder how, like, these Asian Yu Gi Oh players, how do they see the Yu Gi Oh franchise? Yeah. Like, it's is it interesting? Is it nostalgia? You know, a lot of people don't even know, like, I know it's getting, like, a little bit tangenty. Like, when we went to Japan, I was curious, like, okay, what are card shops, like, what are they like? And already I saw, like, a big difference in just, like, the amount of, like, kind of Yu-Gi-Oh decoration and kind of imagery Mm -hmm. that you'll see. A lot more card shops also seem to have, like, those cases with the cards just on display. Just showing them off. There's a lot of those. They look so nice. Yeah, they look really nice. Uh, So I wonder what it's like then for these people who now have access to these Asian English cards, I guess, again. Maybe they want more of the modern stuff. I saw they, they recently got, like, Duelist Nexus released there. Yeah. I know there was, like, some major typo in, like, a card or something. I don't remember. <laughs> I should have brought the story, but, yeah, there's, like, a card that had, like, a typo. Nothing major, but, you know. Anyway, sorry. That was tangent. Yeah. No, yeah, that's good, because uh, I actually have one more OCG card reveal. Okay. And that is uh, Crescent Dragon Makazuki no Yaiba. So this is actually a retrain of an older Yu-Gi-Oh card who I wish I'd pulled it up. But um it's it, the monster looks like the um Joey's monster, like alligator sword or something. But it's actually a retrain of of a really, really old 
how I'm going to see if I can find it. Look up like Crescent Dragon or no, it has a it has a Japanese. Oh yeah, Mikazuki no Yaiba. Yeah, Mikazuki no Yaiba. Yeah, it's old That's vanilla. It. Okay. It's a, it's a retrain of that. It's a level 7 Dark Dragon. It says during the end phase, this card is in your hand or GY. You can special summon it, but place it on the bottom of your deck when it leaves the field. You can discard one card, add one level 7 Dark Dragon monster from your deck to your hand. So I have no idea what this is supposed to be that used for. loosely like Red Eyes support. And level it can 7 be. Dark Dragon monster. Maybe you get a like Dark Armed Dragon. Like, or... I, I, don't know what the, I don't know what the goal of this card is, but it feels like it's one of those generic tech cards that will find its way into some deck someday. And we're gonna all be like, where'd that come from? It is kind of okay. So, you know, so it summons itself in the end phase. But if it gets summoned in the end phase, it wouldn't be able to use its search effect. So That's it definitely true. feels a little awkward. But it has to be during your end phase. No, it's just during during the, the end, end phase. phase. Okay, so but you summon it and then it gets placed in the bottom of the deck when it leaves the field. So that's maybe not great, and your opponent's just going to like run over it or pop it or something. You summon it during your opponent's end phase. So I guess the goal is to try to summon it in the opponent's end phase. Yeah, which it it feels unnecessary. Yeah. Like, why are we doing this? It's it's very like roundabout, and I hate when they do this with these like kind of anime like esque cards or like old mm-hmm. school cards. They'll kind of retrain them, but it's just it just feels so so clearly dated in in concept. Paul, I think you hit the, the nail on the head. Okay. I think this is dark arm dragon support. It makes a lot of sense. Okay. It's it's a dark dragon in itself, so it can work towards your your dark count. It can search dark arm dragon to your hand, which that's always a thing with dark arm dragon is that it's not that easily searched. But um, pretty much at will, you can pull this thing out your graveyard if you have too many darks. Could you have that have exactly? Oh, maybe three? that's the idea. So that could be it. We might have might have figured it out. Okay. Well, they wait. Does that mean it, it might no. be a dark armed retrain? I mean, they, they did they retrain Dark Arm Dragon a while back with like the Xyz monster. Xyz, if you monster. remember that, like when they did like Judgment Dragon, Trishula. Oh, those Chaos weird ones that have nothing yeah. to do with their former selves. Yeah, they're, they're, they're no, we don't want that Konami. I mean, don't they're vaguely that. related in effect. But, but I, I'll take good. like um, you know how they retrained Horus in the mm-hmm. the upcoming set. I would like to see that for Dark Arm Dragon, even if it's yeah. not completely related. Just you know, a modern take on the monster. Uh, any other card reveals of note? Those are the only two I had. Okay, yeah. Well, I was going to say, Master Duel, just a little bit of news. Um, they've So the new ban list has not gone into effect just yet. It's going to be going into effect here in a few days. But mm-hmm. we've also gotten reveals of the next set of like archetypes that will be added in. So we're going to be finally getting Gold Pride in Master mm. Duel. And we'll also be getting... Um, what is the other one? Transcendosaurus. Oh, okay. Introduced. As well as Zeno. the super heavy samurai. Oh, the new stuff. Stuff that came okay. from, yeah, Cyberstorm Access. That will also be getting added in. So, um, a lot of cool, you know, just decks that people have been waiting on. I think Super Heavy Samurai is the last of the things from Cyberstorm Access that hadn't yet been implemented into Master Duel. And I know that Transcendosaurus was the last Wild Survivors deck builder kind of archetype. I've never seen someone play that archetype. Ever, yeah. No. I mean, I've never heard anybody play it physically. At least one nice part about it being in Master Duel is that it means, like, the barrier to playing it is at least a little bit lower. Right. Like you can getting just, your hands on the Ultra Rares is annoying. Yeah. I think Nimbleria is also going to be getting added in that set. It's kind of a smaller thing since you mentioned it earlier <laughs> with the deck. Uh, so, you know, some cool Master Duel stuff. I am, as someone who's not, like, super into any of those archetypes, it's not... Very exciting for me. I might give Gold Pride a crack. Does Master Duel still have the Super Heavy Link monster? 
Uh, yes, I think it's still legal in Massachusetts. I, I might try playing banned, in there. They banned. Oh yeah, uh, Soul Piercer, right? Yeah, they, yeah, they've been the yeah. little thing that has like an FTK with Which it, which is really but. good. But it's fine, it's fine. But I, would I, like I, to I'm see. A, I might try it. I'm a, no, I'm not might. I will try it. I'm gonna go ahead and say it. Yeah, I, I think that'd be pretty cool to see like Super Heavy Samurai, and that's out right now. It's like in three days. All right, guys, stay tuned. Next episode of the Pod, I will have an update on my progress with Super Heavy and Macedor. You will hold me to that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious. I never got super into Super Heavies, but um. They're just more archetypes. Like, you know, Master Duel is just getting more stuff. I will never complain about more people being able to play the decks they like. So Right, right, right. Um, as for me, I haven't really... I've kind of tapered back on playing a little bit because I'm just waiting on the new ban list to kind of kick in. I think Chaos Roller has scarred me so much that I really don't want to hop into ranked and look at this bitch ass again. I so, can't think of a card that you've mentioned more in disdain than Chaos Roller. Yeah, I'm telling you, I don't everybody hates Max C and Master Duel. I'm telling you, man, like shit like Chaos Roller and Block Dragon will run you ragged. I do I do hate Block I do Dragon. not like that's those my cards. that's my Chaos Roller is Block Dragon. I hate Yeah, that I card. do not like those cards. But um yeah other than that, I know Master Duel, I think there was also like a New Year uh campaign Oh. That they're doing where you can like get some master packs and get like a special background and stuff. So for like a discount of gems that you can pay. So if you haven't already taken advantage of that, definitely do so. What's the best deck you can build out of master packs? Anything. I mean master packs have everything. Oh, they do have everything? Yeah, yeah. the master pack I think contains just every card in the game. Outside oh. of maybe like a very small handful of Maybe some of those limited cards. It's actually one of the problems with buying master packs is that it's the worst use of gems to buy because it can be the literally anything. The card pool is too large. Yeah, whereas like you'd rather buy a more concentrated pack with the most of the cards from the archetype that you're building. But Wait, still what's the pack it. that has only like old cards? Or those like are the legacy cards. packs. What's the best deck you can build with legacy packs? Oh, that's a great question. You could probably build like a rudimentary like little hero or... Like, next time Neo's you're on stream, probably need to answer that question for me. I mean, so I think... Um, I don't know if anybody's done it. Because, like, Simo does that series, Master Duel Masochist. I finally got around to watching a couple episodes of it. Oh, yeah? It's a little different, though, because he, he plays it with Master Packs. Oh, so, basically, okay. like, he has to just play Master Packs and build with whatever he gets. Random stuff. Can't He can't, like, um, dismantle or, you know, const- or craft just anything. the he wildness of Yu-Gi-Oh! Embrace it. I don't know if anybody's done, like, a something with just Legacy Packs, though. Legacy That'd be of the Duelist. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, that'd be hard because legacy packs suck. But um, also, Paul will do it, guys. It's easy to get legacy packs just by playing, and you can't dismantle any cards that you get from them. So, Woo. yes, they're, they're really hardly considered a reward, but they exist. Um, yeah. So that's just a little bit of master duel news. Nothing super duper crazy. Uh, I think that's like more or less it on the Yu Gi Oh side. I got nothing else. I don't feel like I'm uh, forgetting anything. I mean, there's just the the year's kind of getting started. There's products on the horizon. Yeah, we've got plenty coming. So, yeah, it'll be exciting moving forward. But, anywho, um, any other card game stories? I actually have a handful of stuff about Wizards of the Coast and Magic the Gathering. Oh, do you? I do have a handful. Okay, I've got a few card game stories as well. They're not loading in my pocket thing, so I'm going to have to pull them up on another. That's okay. I can distract them with mine. Okay, all right, I have them. But yeah, you first. All right, so this one's mostly about the uh, TCG itself. Uh, MTG head designer has had complaints from has has had complaints from many players over product fatigue. 
Okay. So as you know, many people know that uh, Magic the Gathering releases products at like this crazy rate where they're constantly filling up shelves. Players always have new products to buy and they're tired. They're tired. We're tired. Everyone's tired. So wait, tired. where did this come? Like, did he, like the lead designer acknowledge this? Or Yes. So oh, okay. I'm pointing, I'm, I'm trying to find the best part to read from. You read it all. I could. I just don't want to. Uh, Had the runtime. Fine. One of the biggest <laughs> issues facing Magic the Gathering players over the past couple of years has been product fatigue. As many feel, Wizards of the Coast has been releasing too many sets at far too fast of a pace for Magic fans to keep up with. That could be due to financial reasons or simply because fans feel like they're not getting enough time with a new set before the next one is on their tables. I actually agree with that. It's a common complaint among fans and high-profile streamers, and one that finally seems to be getting Magic Gathering head designer Mark Rosewater in a recent post on his blogatog. Blogatog. That's what it's called? Yeah, blogatog blog. Blog I like that. And it's fun to say. MTG fan recently asked Rosewater whether the current release schedule is planning on slowing down over the next couple of years and wondered how to communicate the desire for one to Wizard of Coast without voting with my dollar. Which I guess without having to just not buy product. How do you let them know that you are feeling fatigued? Okay, interesting. So I'm trying to find the quote because there was one, but now it. Seems to pay. Yeah, I wonder what he's got to say. It says, Yeah, that's weird. Well, hold up. I'm going to look and see if I can find it. Oh, and... I'm just going to open up the original. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that about, it usually solves it. Sometimes when I save in here, here we go. In response, Rosewater claimed that he's been receiving complaints about the current release schedule from many players and that using social media is actually quite helpful. He also claims that he and other social media facing individuals at Wizards of the Coast have been passing on these complaints to the higher ups who decide the release schedule and how many products are released in a calendar year. So while the yes, that is acknowledgement, it's also him saying that that's not really up to me. <laughs> so I guess he just, yeah, that kind of makes sense because he's just the designer of them, but mm-hmm. like, he has higher ups that will just tell him like, "Hey, make more." Yeah. Or like, we're gonna kind of dictate how much. Um, yeah. Now that said, it's interesting that he's even allowed to say that. Yeah, it's like, certain other companies. I know, like, there's some other companies where, like, even just the idea, like, because what he's saying here effectively is not like that it's good or bad or he even likes or dislikes it. Mm-hmm. So he's really not giving like a super committal response. Rather, he's just saying it is good that players are able to voice their pleasure or displeasure with this and that I encourage them to do so. Yes. While I am not the person who can make the decision like that you are ultimately seeking, I have heard you and if you continue to do it, maybe the people, the powers that be will hear you and you know, something can come of that. Uh, yeah, you know, so that's good. I'm, it's just nice to see him be able to even say that. Yeah, um, community engagement is one of those things that I feel that's been getting better in the gaming and TCG spaces, mm-hmm. but not not every company has figured that out or how to do it well. This is a step in the right direction. Maybe it's not the best thing in the world, but it's certainly a good step. Do you think that there are too many magic products? Yes. I have an opinion on it, but it's, I'm such an outsider that, okay. Good. Yeah, um... As someone who's been really into the product release schedule of Magic at the tail end of 2023, pretty much the last half of last year, I've been really dialed into the products that have been releasing and what's been coming out. And my head was spinning at points Mm -hmm. where 
I'm like, okay, a new set release. It has a set booster, it has a collector booster. It's got new uh, commander decks that come with it. And by the time I got my hands on everything that I wanted from those sets, the next set was right on the horizon, and it was coming out with a set booster, collector booster. And, you know, every collector booster has exclusive rarities that you specifically want your cards in, so it can take time to get those cards. And God forbid there are new commander decks that go with it, yeah, I was going to say, I, and I think I've covered, covered this in the podcast before, but, like, Magic the Gathering, like, scares me. <laughs> it's nothing to do with, actually, the difficulty and everything to do with the amount of products. It's a lot. Like, when I walk into the card shop, I'm just like, ah, there's so many. Like, there's so many different decks. And it, it's, don't get me wrong, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! has its issues with, like, kind of product overload a little bit. I think, like, mm-hmm. the latter half of last year kind of could feel like that at points, where there was, like, okay, product, 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 like, just new thing, new thing, new thing. But with Magic, it's insane to me that like you know i someone can correct me if i'm wrong it feels like there's like a new core set every two months whereas like Yu-Gi-Oh! it's every three months but i feel like magic it's like there's like a core set every two months like, like just about maybe they move so and fast. then each core set comes with like i i suppose four new commander decks uh usually or at least four, two or is it, i think it's but, three yeah could be could be three or four uh, two to I four confused. i get two confused. to four of them and i'm just like it's so wild. like, And then each core set, it's like there's a regular set, and there's the collector's version of the set, and there's also like the draft version of the set. Yeah, now, I know that booster. moving forward, they're going to be combining the draft version mm-hmm. with the regular version, so that won't really be a thing. But still, it's just a lot. Like, it's just a it lot of products. leads and to a lot of products sitting on shelves. Yeah, and I'm always so, like, yeah, so you go to this shop, and I'm just like, God damn, like, there's so much stuff on the shelf. I just, I don't know what, like... I guess I, I get a little overwhelmed with, like, what to buy. And it's made me actually, in a weird way, resonate with, like, these Yu-Gi-Oh! Like, you know, we'll get comments on our videos or, like, on social media. It's like, hey, like, I'm getting back into this. What do I buy? Mm-hmm. And and the Yu-Gi-Oh! perspective, that can already be a little overwhelming. Like, what would I recommend somebody actually purchase today? And it's actually a, hard, a harder question to answer than you would think. Right. Because I can't actually just say buy Rarity Collection because Rarity Collection doesn't actually give you a deck. Yeah, it just gives you things for your decks. But then I also don't think I could even tell them to buy, like, Age of Overlord because that also doesn't really give you a deck. And So both, or do you get, like, a structure? I guess you get a structure, but if you don't like the one recent structure, that might be all that's on the shelf. So I guess in that way, like, Magic is giving you a lot of options, but it's also, like, it can be, it's a bit too much. It can be hard to find a jumping off point in Magic. And actually, I have a small anecdote. Um, I, I was at the shop right before I left for the uh, like for the holidays, and they had one collector's booster from Commander Masters left on the shelf. Now, that's plenty of Magic products on the shelf, but they had just one collector's booster. And that was what's one of the issues with their product release, since every set had a collector's booster. These are, you know, inordinately expensive packs that they don't move it out. Once the set kind of has passed... Those boosters do not move very fast because of how expensive they are. Mm-hmm. And so they're sitting here with this one Commander Masters pack, which came out in the summer, I believe. Yeah, Commander Masters was, yeah, like early like, summer. It's been of, a while since then. There's plenty. There's been plenty of product after. And like, hey, do you, Alec, do you want to buy this Commander Masters, the collector's booster? It's like, like you want to open it on your channel? You want to buy it? Like, uh, well, I mean, I feel like I want to buy something Magic related today, but like, I don't know if I want to go all the way back to Commander Masters. Yeah, I guess there's also th- there's that fear of, like, if I buy, like, a Commander deck that's even just a few months old, 
it feels like it might be more dated more quickly because there's so many. Although I understand, my understanding is that that's not really the case because of like the balancing and magic is much more around like rotation and yeah. So it like, depends on how what format you want to dive into and um, actually, it really just depends on what format you're trying to play here. Which like also. I, it's going to sound so hypocritical of me because I know, like, I'm a big proponent of, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! needs more alternative formats and stuff. Mm-hmm. Konami support, all these things. But I do see the other side of it where it can just be overwhelming. Like, to be, you know, someone wants you to get into Magic and then they first have to pick, like, pick which, your like format. which format are you going to play? Because each format literally has, like, different products. Yeah. Like, entirely, you know, de- you know, created for it. And it can be a lot. So... Anyway, so I guess get back to this Mark Rosewater quote. I hope that they maybe slow it down a little bit. This is from a Yu-Gi-Oh! player's perspective, so take it with a grain of salt. I know like, I'm an idiot. I don't play Magic. I don't know anything. If, if you guys, if people are, if there are Magic people who are listening to this, who like, who have not had an issue with the rate of mm-hmm. um, releases, please let me know like a little bit more about that. I would love to hear it because I feel like they have too many. Yeah. I, I just, I, I get the, too. I can know you and Larry play. And, like, you know, obviously, like, Larry, like, he wants to kind of build pretty much something from almost every set, it feels like. The only one he didn't have too much interest in was uh, Lost Caverns of Ixalan. Though he seemingly has, like, bounced back on that. But it also, it's like, I know he has more limited time to, like, go to the card shop and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like for someone like him, it's like, man, by the time you build the deck, like, the next thing's been announced and you haven't actually had a a day to, like, or a week that you've been able to go to the card shop and play the deck, it's like... That's true. I I haven't really played around with the pirates from Lost Caverns, but Ravnica Remastered has released, and now we're looking forward to the... uh, The Murders at Markov Manor. Markov? Mavlo- Look, guys, I'm not good with my magic names yet. Leave yeah, me alone. so it's I don't know. I, I can I see where people are going with this. I know that Hasbro would much prefer that they just release as much as they can, and people just buy. It's as all much. sales. It's all new money. But I do think like post pandemic, especially, I don't know that people have as much like time like, and just like time, income to be like just like buying all of this stuff. So, but that's not all I have for uh, Magic the Gathering. Oh, okay, you got one more. Yeah. So my next story, uh, Wizards. MT- Wizards uh, Magic the Gathering secret layer change is great news for scalpers. What is Wizards Magic the Gathering secret layer change? <clears throat> Wizards of the Coast announced on Tuesday that it is switching from a print to demand model for, for secret layers to a limited print run where a certain number of copies get made and once they're gone, they're gone. Oh. It claims that this will expedite shipping and allow secret layers to reach buyers more quickly. This is true, true, but the change will make the secret layer experience far worse overall. That's an opinion of the author, not my own. Okay. The only ones benefiting, aside from Wizards itself, will be scalpers looking to make a quick buck. I mean, they're not the only ones benefiting, but they will benefit, as a, that is a fact. Yeah. The print-to-demand model is a great model for the consumer because you can take your time cons- coming to a decision and everyone gets what they want it is a slower process wizards can't make its secret layers until after all the orders are placed but it's far better than the alternative that's not our opinion that's yeah but you get you get the gist here because before now secret if you wanted a secret layer you could get it because it was print to demand they made as many as uh as came as came in yeah but now they're switching over to kind of a like it's a drop we're only making so many of these guys, and yeah. get your order in now. Well, or- you know, I'm not a big fan of drop culture. I don't really care for, like, it's like a limited time drop. Hurry, mm-hmm. like, be here, get it. Um, and I generally don't think that those are great, like, experiences 
as a consumer the, uh, in general. Um, my question becomes this. Is, was the time for from ordering a secret layer to the delivery of a secret layer so long that it felt like it needed to be yeah, made faster? I wasn't aware of what that what that um time is. Okay, here's my question. So secret layers are the ones that are... Those are like the collab things, Yeah, a lot right? of special collaborations. Like the Doctor Who was a secret layer? Was that what that was? No. That was that's their universe okay. beyond. That's collabor that's a collaboration series part of the it's a part of their main product line. Okay. So but what is like the most recent secret layer if you know? The last one I remember was My Little Pony. Okay, so all right. That wasn't the last one, it's the one that's like a, in my a fairly head. recent yeah. one. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I uh I yeah, so I don't know like what the standard time what the, like what the if someone yeah. wants to fill us in yeah on that. let us know if you've ordered a secret layer how so, long did it take to get in do you order it from them or do you order it from like your card shop and they put in like all the orders and that's like you can where it comes i in. saw it on the magic gathering website you just kind of you can order on their website i don't know if you can order any other in the other way okay but you do but you do similarly put your order directly into them now they're, they're claiming that this will make it fast by switching models it will be faster and they That's are technically true. right it yeah. should be able to move faster since they already know how many they're going to make before they do mm-hmm. um, as someone who frequently uses premium bandai's i guess in a sense that's kind of their secret layer uh equivalent with premium bandai they they do it's print to demand you they they put out the order for an amount of days. Everyone puts their orders in, and everyone who orders something on Premium Bandai, they get it, barring extraneous circumstances. It happens, but it doesn't always happen. But it takes forever to get your Premium Bandai order. And if it's anything like, if secretly it's anything like that, I definitely understand them switching well, yeah, the model. Wanting to just be able to make them in advance and send them out to yeah. But if it isn't that long, then maybe this isn't so great. Yeah, I guess I don't have a strong opinion on it. Being a non-magic player, I would like to hear what people think. But my general opinion on those sorts of things, I do not like drops. Now, yeah, I'm I think not a that fan either. One, the, my final thought on that though is, were, were secret layers products so in demand that they would be like scalp worthy? I have seen certain. So it depends on what the collaboration is. Yeah, certain okay. secret layers they kind of flop on the secondary market. I say that with quotes because flop is relative. But in others, depending on what the collaboration is, they're very hot and people want to just buy them up really fast on the secondary market. If... Because I've never gotten the impression that like magic is like Pokemon where, you know, like if there's a drop, it's the end of the world. You know what I mean? Like I've never gotten that impression either, but I'm not, I'm not really keyed into secret layer culture. So guys, let us know in the comments if you are a secret layer purchaser or have done in the past. How do you feel about this change and how you feel about your experiment, your experience in general? Yeah, this is one of those articles where like their people being angry is like Twitter things they pulled up or something. No, that this time it was just uh, the. Just the, the, author the author himself was just quite opinionated. <laughs> they got they had okay. feelings on this. Yeah, they had a, an opinion or two. Okay, well, cool. Any other magic things? I do. This one oh, actually man. combines okay. um, three magic stories. Yeah, there's three magic stories. Wow, new year, new me. Huh? <laughs> new year, <laughs> new magic. This one combine. It's a. It's actually very similar. Uh, another kind of page in our saga of magic and AI. Oh dear! All right. This one's different though. So, AI art generator allegedly scraped Magic the Gathering cards for material. 
Well, that's no surprise. So AI-generated art is just pulling from existing work people have created and throwing elements together to create what the algorithm thinks you want. But it's not often you hear specifics of where an AI program is scraping from. Well, the CEO behind AI art generating program Midjourney, you might have heard of it, allegedly has been training the algorithm on work by Magic the Gathering artists the entire time. Oh, okay. So they admitted to this or whatever? This kind of just came out? It does seem that at least someone admitted to this. Okay. It says, Reed Southern, an artist who has worked with companies like Marvel and DC, posted screenshots of what he claims to be interactions on Midjourney's Discord server. They show a conversation between Midjourney CEO David Halls and others with Halls claiming that he had the program create huge swaths of MTG cards during test sequences in the program's early days and use the work of magic artists to feed the machine sources to pull from. I feel like I saw a similar story to this recently too, like a Midjourney kind of like Discord expose. Though Mid Journey and other AI programs, Discord servers will always be a hotbed for like information that upsets people. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, okay, well, it's a, it's night. Oh, sorry, is there more to the? Um, it's, there's really just a small part here where it says this this accompanies new evidence for the ongoing lawsuit against Mid Journey, DeviantArt, and Stability AI which includes a list of the names of over 4,700 artists whose work has allegedly been scraped by Midjourney. The lawsuit representing artists Sarah Anderson, Kelly McCarran, and Carla Ortiz claims AI generative software is built upon foundation of copyrighted work. Halls, however, doesn't want to be involved in the plagiarism debate. Well, too late. Yeah, okay. Well, I was going to say, for starters, it's nice to know this isn't like a wizard screwed something up again type of story. Yeah. This is actually, I guess, just... Wizards, Wizards just, artists that they do, you know, employ have had their work scraped. So, you know, unsurprising. Um, <sighs> AI gonna AI. I, now, look, man, I have said it once. I said it again. I can't stand the idea of AI artwork. Um, I don't, it's not because I care so much about these individual artists, um, like, plagiarism or their intellectual property it's more so just the art of it all i don't believe ai can make art what they make to me is not artwork that's interesting so you your stance in it is probably feels a little more just kind of like artistic semi-ethical semi like more of just the what is art sort of thing Mm -hmm. for me i'm um i dislike ai art for the opposite reason is just because i so I've seen these like AI generations now that like they, they pop up more and more on like Twitter and Instagram. I've shared some stories about how I see them. Some will have okay, so you know like AI art can't really or currently doesn't it struggles with doing like text. Like yeah. so just, it, you can't really have it like generate like person standing in front of a waffle house because like the in the background it can't spell waffle house. It just can't right. it, it'll kind of be some gibberish sort of thing. Well, um, what's interesting is that with a lot of AI-generated images, what you'll see is they'll have watermarks. But, like, it's not intended watermarks. It's, like, kind of just a weird scribble that'll be in the corner of one in the screen. Because it was, like, trained on some photographer's gallery of, like, (laughs) photos that they took of a person. Or, like, photos of an environment. And so, because, like, if I was a a photographer Mm -hmm. and I took, you know, someone's wedding photos or something... And, like, I uploaded a hundred of them on my, like, site as my gallery or whatever. And AI trained on all of them, and they all have that watermark down there. It'll try and include the watermark. It will kind watermark. of find that watermark as, like, a 
almost just it'll see it as a part of the work the the prompt so in, so now if someone like goes on mid journey or stable diffusion or whatever and they're like two frogs getting married or something at a that definitely something like chapel. an ai art prompt yeah and so like it might still just have like a the vestige of like a vague watermark just mm-hmm. in the corner and it won't even be in like all the images that it generates but just some of them will have that right and that to me is like a real like red flag that yeah they're definitely just scraping things and we know like they scrape the internet i mean it's just anything can get random it. gallery from random blog from 2006 there's or, some artist work uh, that should never be scraped but they're scraping them too yeah so they're just kind of scraping everything and um for me, I I certainly do. I totally get the like you know what is art conversation because I do. I didn't think I'm talking so much about AI today. Let me I gotta prepare myself <laughs> on this pod. Yeah. So um, I don't think AI art's really art. I I think that it is the best I will give it is that it is like imagery that can can have a use for someone. I suppose right. Mm-hmm. You can like blurt out just an image it could help you maybe brainstorm it a future idea or like a concept look for something or maybe if you just really don't care and you just want like you know ai anime girl you know like people on the internet just i just want to see generic ai anime girl and like it's that's enough for me that i can get my rocks off to that right there are people like that where i guess sure ai can just serve the purpose for you and I know that for a lot of those people, they probably weren't going to maybe commission an artist anyway. So whether AI existed or not, they maybe didn't have the money to or didn't care to. They would just look they up the art. They didn't so. care about art so here. They just cared about. They just wanted the, the sensation like, of seeing the thing at all. It's what my way. base kind of uh, desires, desires fulfilled. That's all I yeah. want. And so, I mean, like, I guess like AI art, if that is just all you want, it can give you that. For me, I don't even, I, I really I can never get past like the defocused eyes or the weirdly like they've mm-hmm. finally kind of gotten fingers to where they usually will have five fingers, but it'll still like one will be long, or, like a fingernail will be weird or just so it's stuff like that. Like as somebody who I examine my art pretty closely, I'll just never be able to see past those things. I just like, won't. For like, me, I, I need to see the human in my art. When I look at when I look at a piece, I want to be able to imagine the person working on the piece. I want to see like their style. I want to see kind of the peculiarities of like how they interpret nature or the anatomy. It doesn't have to be perfect artwork. It just has to be that person's work. Yep. And AI can never be that because it's just an amalgamation of people's work and And like you can kind of guide it sure like you can go like i'll do it in the style of this or in the style of that but it still isn't actually there is not a thing now on the more like kind of legal end of it i really i mean i get why these artists are upset like it's there's a lot of like money i guess kind of being lost in a sense that like your art is being stolen and then eventually replicated and then there's some ai account that's like it's a challenge to your livelihood. Yeah. And that is something that you have to fight because it's kind of like survival of the fittest in a way. AI art is shown up and has directly threatened to all artists who make a living or even make any kind of revenue through their art. And there's only two things you can do. Either you can, you create art that's better than AI art. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not, that's a harder thing to do than yeah, you would, Subjective but, and just or difficult. you fight the AI itself. You fight. You, you try and push it out of your circles, out of your communities. And I think that is a ve- that is 
the next best thing. Don't take it lying down. Don't just yeah, accept is, it. I think some litigation it. needs to happen because, like, it's yeah, it's it's a rough one. I've seen like on Twitter, there's an account, um, like just some art accounts and stuff that I follow. They do like thumbnails and stuff, people's videos. Mm-hmm. And one of the accounts that I follow, um, Metallica, right? Okay, I've, he's like made some some art and stuff. He was one of the people that I wanted to do, like, teammate PS. That's not the... That's funny. He's done some art, Metallica. He's done some art. Yeah, he's done some art. I'm making it... He has done a very good job with many different art pieces, and he's worked on like, in, in an official capacity with a lot of companies. Yeah. He has done amazing things. He is very talented. I don't... Yeah. Sorry, the way I'm saying it, I, I don't give it to me. I'm making it sound like, eh, he's some guy. He's done a little bit of art. He's dabbled. Yeah. No, but um, he, he does very good stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, he was one of the artists that I actually considered to do like our like Team APS channel art a couple years back when mm-hmm. we got some new channel art. I ended up going with him. It wasn't anything personal. I mean, it was, I just looked at a few different people, and like I eventually landed on somebody. But he does... um. He does these, like, manga-style um, profile pictures for people. Yeah. Just for, like, fans or whatever, people who follow him. So you can send him a picture of yourself, and, like, he'll just, for, like, 40 bucks or something, it's like a, um, like, you and the Bleach manga style, let's say. Right. Now, the thing is, I mean, he is doing the drawing, so it's really cool. He has kind of his own flair to it. But with, like, AI services, man, I mean, you, I know some of these ones where you can just plug in something and, like, It'll shoot out just a million of them. And also, you can do, like, character fan art and stuff with those. Yeah. And it's difficult because as an artist, I mean, like, you literally art takes time. Like, you have to take some hours at least to, like, kind of draw and perfect kind of this piece. And when when the competition is literally just this machine that will mindlessly throw out 80% good enough photos for the average person on Twitter who does not discern very much and they just kind of want a picture of their favorite anime girl or you know just they don't really care that like her eyes are half crossed <laughs> but <laughs> that face oh my god <laughs> but like i mean they just they just want to see her right like big boob anime girl but i think yeah it's just, it's really not very cool like i've never seen ai art that can uh satisfy my desires that's because I I want much more from art. If I'm putting my money where my mouth is, yeah, I don't want just like some piece, you know. Yeah, and I think that's this will be my last thing. I know, like we kind of just yeah, we've got from, AI always from does the Magic this. Gathering part, but like is I think that and this is maybe a little worrying. Probably this is a very worrying part for an artist is just that like so what you said is if I'm putting my money where my mouth is, I want something better. And something that I'm kind of noticing is that if, like, a lot of these, like, AI art, like, Instagram pages and, like, stuff, they will do, like, AI stuff for you for such a cheap price that it worries me how much, how attractive that price is and how much Mm -hmm. people would be willing to overlook those imperfections. Because if getting, like, a self-portrait of yourself in a cool kind of anime-looking style costs $100 from, like, an established good artist, but there's some guy who will generate, like, 20 of them for you for five bucks because what does he care? I mean, he's just right. throwing just in throwing prompts in keywords. and kind of saying stuff. And sure, you can say, well, well, like, you know, the eyes or the fingers are kind of something's a little off about it. But like, man, it's like five bucks. And so I can certainly see why the average just internet person who's just looking to have a cool profile picture on their Twitter account might just be willing to overlook it all. And I'm not that person. I can't, like, as I've said, eyes, fingers, it. It's just 
it's I can't look past it. Right. But I know people can. And that's why I think it's good that some litigation or, you know, legislation of some kind is at least trying to take on the to trying to stick. So yeah, uh, I feel bad for the Magic the Gathering artists. I guess the Yu-Gi-Oh artists can't be upset because they're not allowed to say anything about the art they draw for Yu-Gi-Oh. We know Yu-Gi-Oh. very few of them. Oops, sorry, I got a little too bitter there. <laughs> My bad. Um, Cool. Any more Magic stories? That's it. That's all I had. Oh, I was looking forward to more Magic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got a couple more quick card game ones. Um, Bandai officially announces Union Arena English uh, version. I mean... Oh, you're not happy about this. No, I'm so sick of Bandai TCGs. Okay, well, um, the release of uh, Bandai's Union Arena is set for October 2024. So at least you get a few months away from it before the impending doom arrives. Uh, yeah, so they announced this actually like December 27th, so we just kind of missed covering it in the last podcast, but it's the English version of the Japanese game Union Arena. Union Arena English version is the English version of the Japanese card game Union Arena. Such a something worried sentence. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, so it released in Japan in March 2023. We actually saw some packs and cards when mm-hmm. we went to Japan last year, so that's pretty cool. Trading card game that lets many popular anime and game titles battle using one set of rules. So kind of one of those like uh, Universus style Universus games. or um, oh, I'm blanking on the name of that game series. Bushy Roads one. I know what you're talking about. Why Schwartz? There you sort of, go. Yeah. Why Schwartz? Um, so this time it will not only be a simple localization of the Japanese to English. The titles uh, included in the lineup will be selected especially for North America, and the brand logo and card back will also be getting new designs specifically for the. English okay, version. so it's about to be shown and heavy as hell. Yeah. So the first three titles are Bleached Thousand Year Blood War. Uh, uh, that was that, that was like sense. recently airing, yeah. right? Yeah. Hunter Hunter. Makes sense. And yeah. Jujutsu Kaisen. Oh yeah. To kick things off, uh, all very popular in North America. And so there's also going to be some like accessories that are going to be um, introduced as and, well. And lots of anime screenshots for cards. Hopefully not. I really hope it's not like a, what I've kind of called a Google Images card game mm-hmm. where it's just anime screenshots. But I have a strong card. feeling that's what's I happening here. I hope that's not the case. Um, but I will say that I'm interested in the fact that they are um, choosing to change the logo and the card backs. That mm-hmm. seems a little bit different. So. It is. They're definitely trying to personalize it for the Western audience. I think they are trying to learn some lessons from their last few card game releases in the West. Yeah. Uh, you know, One Piece has gone over well. Digimon went over well, but Battle Spirits did not. I mean, I think Battle Spirits, reflecting on it, it was just it didn't have a recognizable IP really for, for the average person. I don't know that there was an IP. I mean, I guess it. I mean, Battle the Spirits is an IP. Was, yeah. So. Nothing that people really seem to resonate with too much over here. I I think this is cool. Listen, I'm never going to wish for like failure for any of these games. I'm not. I know that I a lot of people have to for Digimon Survival. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, Ben has thrown another card game in the ring to cannibalize the existing ones. I know that people are working on this game, on the design, on the cards, on everything. I know that's not easy, so I'm not going to say like I hope it fails or something. What I will say though is that I think that there is already some card game overload, and Bandai in particular seems like they have zero they hesitation have no qualms with to this. just toss another game into the ring, even if it means, you know, cannibalization. Like, I'm, there's it's so like, many questions. I, sorry, go ahead. 
I'm so wondering what what game do they think they're knocking off its pedestal to make room for this? Why they're old ones like Digimon? Like, that's insane. Like because we thought that they were gonna let Dragon Ball go, but they they they're like, oh no, we're gonna reboot and like, like push through. Fusion thing, and it's like okay, well if you're keeping Dragon Ball with all these other games. What card? Ga- are we just? Is the goal muscling out Bushy Road? We're just gonna be like, there's no room for you anymore. Yeah, I know. Also with this Union Arena thing, um, when we saw this in Japan, I saw like there were My Hero Academia cards. But I know that there's a My Hero Academia card game that already exists, like over here. Now, I know it's not by Bandai. That's by um, Jasco, and it uses the Universal system. So I guess it's like two separate licenses. But like, man, I mean, you can't have two. Like, if you have two, then one's gonna have to die. Now, technically, I guess with Union Arena, it's just going to be one archetype or kind of set well, within. I don't many. think we're getting my hero in universe in um, Union Arena. Well, not at the start, but I feel like they'll have to bring it over eventually, right? More or than likely, not? the license Jasco has will not allow it. It will be strange oh, they're if their license because it will be weird if they have a license that allows another My Hero card game in the same that's region. True. I hope. I hope so. Actually, I hope that's the case because I think that they're having two My Hero games just means that. One will die, and that's unfortunate and that because Jasco's been working hard on their game. Like, yeah, like you know, I know that Jasco's like my hero game isn't like the most popular thing, but I do know that like they, the fact that it's been around as long as it has and hasn't like died out means that someone's like putting in some some elbow grease into it, and so I wouldn't want to see that fall to the wayside for one of these more generic like universal system game type. But, of, just, but that is a universal system. It game. is, but like it's. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But, like, the My Hero Academia card game by Jasco has its own, like, it works on that system, but, it, like, it has its own unique systems in place within the game. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's got its own sets, and, like, they've been doing that for a few years now. This will literally be, like, just the My Hero Academia archetype. Like, for Union Arena, it would just be, like, the My Hero Academia archetype, and, like, that's it. And so maybe you might say, well, okay, that's not a problem there maybe that there's not enough overlap but i'm not so sure and i think that that level of confusion for people for the average person might just lead them to think one's just better or whatever and like i don't know i it just doesn't seem like it's like a great faith way of releasing it more than likely union arena in the west won't have any prop any card games that are already feature other like manga or anime properties this won't be in it I don't expect to see Dragon Ball in there. I don't expect to see My Hero. It's just and certainly not One Piece it, or not One Piece. I just don't. It will be. It will be very strange. Right. Okay. Yeah. So this is going to be coming out in October. So if you guys are looking for another card game to add to your repertoire, by all means, you can look forward to this one. Fun. Dope. Got another card game story for you. Oh, what you got? This one is about. See if I can find it. He can't find it. This one is... You can pre-order a new TCG featuring a galaxy far, far away. Uh, uh. Yeah, this came out just a couple days ago. Um, So, yeah, they're releasing... These Let me be clear, guys. I love Star Wars. I do. Yeah. yeah All right, continue. So, a new Star Wars-themed game is coming in March, but you can pre-order it today. Star Wars Unlimited is a trading card game in which you can battle your favorite characters from a galaxy far, far away... The Spark of Rebellion set features heroes and villains from the original Star Wars trilogy, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, Star Wars The Rebels series, and other forms of Star Wars media. I love those series. So, um, if you're not trying to get involved in Star Wars Unlimited, you've got Spark of Rebellion, which is a two-player starter pack for $34.99, two ready-to-play decks with Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. 
Of as a course. kid, I always thought it was Dark Vader, but it's Darth Vader. I think I did as a kid, too. Darth didn't make any sense, but Darth Fans did. Fans will also find full playsets of 10 exclusive cars that you can't find in any other pack. It's like part of the sort of starter deck, structure decks. Then once you're comfortable and you want to start building your own deck, you can add some Star Wars Unlimited booster packs to your collection for expanded storylines and interactions with different characters. So um, there's like a booster display that's 120 bucks. That's 24 individually wrapped packs. Each pack contains 16 cards. They also have deck boxes and play mats as well as sleeves and soft crates. So they are definitely... What's a soft crate? I don't know what that is. I don't either. Anyways, continue with your thought. No, I, I really like, do, I don't well, know. Well, I, I am glad that they're hitting the ground I think it's running. like a thing that is like a storage thing. Oh, okay. Like not a deck box, but like a crate to just store everything in. And it's soft or something. Sure. Whatever. Anyway, I'm glad they're hitting the ground running. They have a full product line. It reminds me of how Lorcana launched. It just yeah, had all the accessories you needed just right there. So you're that's be all playing. I have to say. You're going to be playing, Alec. You're going to be no. pre-ordering your Star Wars things. Because there's too many card games. Or at least that's what I'm saying tentatively. I haven't seen a card, and that's that's what's protecting me right now. Protecting you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, so listen. I'm not going to play this, but that has nothing to, it's nothing against the game, as always. I just It's hard to even pull me away from Yu-Gi-Oh! as it is. And I feel that with games like this, where it's just IP the card game, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. I don't have loads of faith that these things even like last a year. It's doesn't it doesn't feel likely. I mean, I'm I. But Star Wars is a very very large IP. Yeah, Star Wars is a huge IP, and they will certainly milk it for all it's worth. So, I, I imagine Larry will probably give this a crack. And there's a lot of uh, those first mover card game types that they just like to get in on the ground floor of card games more so than they like to actually stick with them. So there yeah. will be a, a large amount of people it's who just show up interest. for the beginning. And, of course, there's the scalpers who will show up just to collect, like, first yeah, run products. The, the rare Luke, I was going to say Luth Vader. Luth the, Vader. The, the Luke Skywalker card that's, like, signed and is worth, like, a thousand bucks or something. Yeah, so anyways, I mean, this is cool. It's coming out in March, which is a little sooner than Union Arena, so you can start playing this and then drop it in October, right? I hope not. Yeah, I mean, okay, I've been really negative about it. I will say one nice thing about this game, as somebody who does not like know really anything about Star Wars, I think that the pack design is like kind of unique. I don't so want to see it. That's that's kind of cool. And the play as long as I don't see them, cool. I'm safe. So. We'll have to show Alec Carter, too, to get him nice and addicted. Cool. Any other uh, card game stories? No. Okay. You got something else? Yeah. I've got, I've got a few other different ones I've as got well. some. I only have 5% battery on this thing, so let's, go, let's get into it. Turn down it. that brightness and pray. <laughs> All right. So, you guys know I like play a lot of mobile games. You do. I do. I play. I play. I play plenty, and I've been trying to like you know wheel it back some, but uh, China has some things to say about that. Oh, they're not too pleased with Alec playing his. So games. China implements strict new gaming laws. Interesting. This is for so, mobile games, huh? Uh, it's it'll affect all games, but it will affect Primarily mobile games mobile, quite okay. a bit. So China announced new laws intended to limit microtransactions and prevent certain predatory practices by gaming companies affecting the stocks of major Chinese corporations like Tencent. As the world's largest video game vendor, Tencent's market value experienced a long fall following the reveal of these new laws. 
China's biggest player in the gaming market has undergone undergone massive growth over the last decade, with Tencent buying up plenty of game studios like Dying Light Maker Techland. China has become the largest gaming market in the world, with many of its players buying microtransactions. It seems that the Chinese government is worried about the popularity of such practices and intends to keep it from growing out of control. Right. This makes sense because as a uh, most mobile games, you know they tra- they target the yeah, they- China because that's the most people, and they have a culture of buying these microtransactions. So, what are the new policies? Let's see. Very curious. To I'm trying hear. to get them here. Okay, as reported by Reuters, Chinese lawmakers unveiled new laws pertaining to video games. These laws will ban rewards for spending money within a game for the first time. Oh. So those first-time rewards, so they're going to ban those. Okay. They'll ban rewards for buying consecutive microtransactions. So that's typically like those step-up rewards where you spend a little bit more and more and get more things. Right, okay. And ban rewards for daily logins. So those parts where you just log in and you get a quick reward, they, they want to hit those too. Okay. These practices have become commonplace in many free-to-play games. Also, these new laws will implement a new cap on how much each player can spend within a game. Woo! Now, that's huge. That's a lot. That okay. is, those are huge laws. Let's break it down a little bit. So All right. You play a lot of mobile games. And I've experienced every single one of these types of reward systems. All right, so take, let's take them one by one. I want to go one by one, and you can tell me what you think of each. So okay. I know the first one... Well, actually, let's start from the... From the general limit to how much people can spend. That is gigantic because there's a con- there's a very common concept in the mobile game community. It's called a whale. And that's a person who spends an inordinate amount of money. Like, tip- like I'm talking about in the thousands, oftentimes the tens of thousands. Like, whales spend, spend. Mm-hmm. And they buy up pretty much everything they possibly can in the game. And then they're, they're usually your, like, strongest players on the server. Right, yeah. It's very commonplace. Some, a lot of people start these games to become whales. With that is their like goal. That's what they've gotten used yeah. to. That's what they do. They plan to. Whale. I used to think I was a whale until I found out just how much it would cost to be one. Uh, I think I'm more of like a. I wonder a dolphin. Have they uh, a dolphin? <laughs> have they said like how much the limits kind of will be? Like I'm I have like not maybe, like, seen, a but limit. this is uh, like uh, the gamer article. Maybe if I went to the Reuters article, I could see the exact. It might amount. be. Okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, I can—I don't even really, I guess, need specifics to know that I think that's probably the biggest thing right there is mm-hmm. just cutting off that, like, tippy-top set of players who will spend thousands and thousands, like, m- per month on these games. So I think that's a um, good thing. Because just speaking on the evolution of mobile gaming, because I've, I've been playing mobile games since 2010-ish, a lot of, like, gotcha-style games, and that's really what we're targeting here. The concept of the microtransaction really was at one point micro. They only asked for a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars at most, sometimes twenty. But that was really it. And players, you'd spend that little bit of money, you get your extra pulls or whatever. And people, and all people who had the means, especially in the West, would really spam those like higher dollar options. Yeah. And see, in certain in many regions in, around the world, people don't have so much money where it makes any sense to increase the microtransaction limit any higher than the equivalent of $20. Mm-hmm. But there were people who would just spam the living mess out of them. And it's like, okay, these people clearly want to be able to spend more money in our game. We've created a game that people feel good about spending lots of money. Let's make a $50 tier. Let's make a $100 tier. And they, and these games consistently find buyers for those price points, which is hilarious when you really think about it. 
as someone who's done it many times, I'm laughing at myself. Yeah, you know, I, so I remember once we were like doing this video a couple years back and we were doing it with a few of our friends. It was like, um, we were teaching them how to play like Yu-Gi-Oh! It was like Trevain and Victor. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like, there's a few videos we've done with them. And like one of them was like, or one of them was like playing like the Dragon Ball mobile game. Oh yeah. I don't know Dokken what it's called. Battle. Dokken Battle or something. And like I saw the price. He was like in the little premium currency shop or whatever the hell it is. And like there was like one item package thing that was like $129.99. Yeah, be and like I was, that. And I, and I was just like, I guess I, I've never been able to wrap my brain around the idea of it costing anything like of ever even dreaming of paying like anything more than like $20 at the most. For like a, a pack of gems or I mean, something. In, in in some mobile games, the price to max limit break a character, and that's usually spending multiple duplicate copies of them. It's in the thousands. It's in the tens of thousands. Yeah, it's pretty insane. So I I just I've always been like shocked that like a shop can just shamelessly be like, okay, here's this pack for nine ninety nine, then like one for twenty four ninety nine, then one that's like. You know, fifty nine nine nine, and one that's one twenty nine nine nine, and that, it's kind of crazy. Like that's without tax, the, the just the spike. So I, I definitely think that like adding a limit to it is good. I think particularly also when it comes to like kids, which all of these I think apply a lot to kids because you know mm. there are their kids they can get in these little online games and you know they'll steal their parents' mom's credit, credit card, cards, and, you know, whatever. So okay, the first one you said was like, stopping first purchase. Bonuses, yeah, first right? purchase bonuses. I know that's big. That's been huge. Uh, it's kind of all over mobile gaming, especially in kind of like Korean, Chinese games. So a lot of like Western games too love to throw in these uh, like first time buyer because yeah. a lot of games they launch with the express intention of milking every single dollar they can out of you, which to me is a bad faith game. Not every game does that, but there are a lot of them that do. And they know that they just need to get you into the habit of, yeah, I know a big concept in market, like in sales, uh, sales and marketing is the first purchase mm -hmm. because people are very strong willed right up until they've done it one time. You yep. only need them to just buy one. It can be a little bit like with a lot of these little mobile games. If I can just get you to spend one dollar, yeah. just 50 cents, you've now like suddenly that like the ice has melted on the idea of spending money on this game. And now it's so much easier to convert you to future purchases. So I think that incentivizing that first purchase with like a bonus if you get the purchase i i do think that like getting rid of that is is helping to get rid of a predatory like i've practice. seen first first purchase bon uh, only first bonus require first purchase bonuses would, that only require you to spend 99 cents yeah they, they don't care a little. how much it is they'll even give you a whole character for doing it because now they, they know like you will do it like, like they just need to get you of doing it Going to that shop page, clicking the premium currency, and buying it. Just get you used to the act of doing it. Because once you do it once, you're significantly more likely to do it again. It was the second one is um, login bonuses. Uh, that that's the I think the next one was consecutive um, purchases. Consecutive purchase. Oh, okay. So yeah. step up banners are they're pretty common. You usually see them in the more kind of scummy games, but even better games they've done they do them too. But typically, um, the very first step is very cheap, very um, good value. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, you can get ten dollars worth of like you get, a, you get you get a ten spin for like less than half the price. And so in your head, you're like, oh, that's easy value. I'll go make that purchase. And say, so, hey, but check this out. 
If you then buy a second, third, fourth, and then the fifth time, we'll give you like we'll give you we might give you a ticket that lets you choose a character. And that's a choosing a gotcha game where it's all random. Mm -hmm. They'll say you can choose a character if you make it to the fifth step. But the amount you have to go you have to put in for each step gets increasingly higher. And usually around the uh the third step, does it no it's no longer like yeah, it's actually good value to money. Yeah, but mm. and once you get to the fifth step, now the value kind of bounces back in your favor because the estimated value of getting a particular character in many games is so high that it's worth it. But they just want you to get used to spending. They don't care that they're, th they're throwing a deal your way. They're not losing money on this. Yeah, it's all they just digital want you, stuff. They because like because re, really they could just throw in a package for that lump sum that gives you a selector ticket to pull a character. No, they want you to do buy multiple times, just really just yeah, grinding gets, down it gets your into the will. Habit too, because like you're just you're just used to spending. What is the third one? The in uh, the third one, I think that was the daily login. The daily login. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I know that that's a big one. That just gets you used to logging in every day. A lot of these games to um so they can claim their active player base. Yeah. They need you to log in so that you're an active user. And so that's just forming. You know. Yeah. Just get you used to getting in every day because these games know, and especially in mobile gaming, time is money. Put in the time and they make money. Yeah, and just the more often that you are you have this game open on your phone or whatever the more passive likelihood that you will eventually spend because mm -hmm. that in addition to all the other um systems in place will simply gradually push you towards a, a, a purchase i was gonna say one that i think that they should also add in that i think is really predatory in these online games i've heard like pokemon unite had a pretty big problem with it before i don't know if this has changed is the um the multi-currency. I've always hated that in games. Oh, yeah. Where there's annoying. like three or four kind of different currencies that you're bouncing between. And like you kind of, you get them all in different ways. And like one you can buy and one you can like sort of buy. So it's like, oh, like you can buy like this will give me 2,000 gems and like also 600 uh, gold things. Yeah. And like, you know, so and by mixing these different currencies, it it's easier, I think, that from the perspective of like you know the salesman right the goal is to confuse you a little bit mm -hmm. where you can't easily convert like what exactly v bucks let's say are to gems and so in your mind they're all kind of just mixed around a little bit they just and they, they it's kind of like money laundering in a way yeah you move the money through multiple like channels units and stuff and units and to the point where you forget you don't know how much is this yeah worth and like you need this to open this thing or this many of that and it's kind of like at some point, you've just lost track of how much you've spent. You've lost track of what anything's worth. All you know is that money will translate to more of each of these yeah. things, and that's all I need at some point. So, good, good on them. They, it's yeah. uh things like people say that this is not likely to move westward. I think it's actually likely to move into the into Europe. Uh, Europe oh yeah, is Europe very sure. defensive about their people and the and these tech Privacy, companies. Privacy, all that stuff. So company, yeah. I could see Europe adopting these types of rules, and if they do, 
What do I we could like too. Master Duel, maybe Master Duel. Master Duel is actually. It's kind of funny. The more I find out about like these mobile gotcha games, the more I'm like, Man, Master Duel is like so surprisingly yeah, they take it easy chill, on you. and like they take it easy on you because they really do. Some of this, some of these games want they will chew you up and spit you out. Like they the want everything. Master Duel is only bad if you don't play, but you still want to get cards. Yeah. If you play and you do your battle passes, you get more you than get enough more currency than to get yeah. what you to build what you want. But if you don't play and put in the time, now you just yeah. They, they can if you're impatient. Yeah, you, they will. Me. They'll milk you. They'll milk you. Um, That's what's gonna happen when I build these super heavies. But good on them. Any other stories? If your tablet was going oh, yeah, down, you might see. as well. I guess I got some more power. Yeah, I have one more, and this one is more gaming focused as well. Okay. So there was this. Kind of Twitter controversy. I don't usually report on this, but it was it's centering around the game director of Tekken, Katsuhiro Harada. Okay. So, and it all stems from a tweet, like it always does. Let me yeah. see if I can get. To, let me see if I can get to the tweet itself. Oh my god! Why did he post such a long? So, there was an upset Tekken player. Okay. They were mad because. Eddie Gordo has not been announced for Tekken yet. Eddie Gordo is like a character. Yes, he okay. is the uh, dark skinned Brazilian capoeira user. I'm sh- I'm sure you've seen him before. Okay. Let's see. I'm trying to I'm trying to find the original tweet so I can quote it. That's just okay. I'm a just gonna bit. look up a picture of him while we're Eddie Gordo. Okay. Cool. I okay. Here we go. Character. So this is from uh, at Tim Tiger sixteen. The only reason why Eddie Gordo hasn't been revealed yet is because the creators of, t- of At Tekken are racist and oh, don't okay. care about black characters or dark-skinned people, so it's going to be a while until the real fighters come out instead of these w- whites, Latins, and Asians. So, Can I just say before we get into any more of this, this is such a Twitter... Like, yeah, it really a, is. Such a tweet. Like, you know, just such a tweet. This guy wants to make this like a, a race... Thing, a, a th- but it's no. They, they clearly, wanna, it's, not even just a, it's just a a dumb Twitter thing. No, it's dumb. It it's is dumb. dumb. Anyways, especially when you read the added context part of um, the post suggests there are no black characters in Tekken Eight except there's Raven and Leroy in the game who okay. are both like very black. So, so on. So, so on a, a bit of a so Harada certain he he responds to all this. But the, the, the problem is, you, and, that's, and here's the thing, Harada actually goes into this very um, honestly. Yeah. The uh, Harada says, if you think you can just claim anything that way and it will pass, you are mistaken. Leroy and Raven will kick your ass. Come to think of it, there are no Japanese characters in the American drama and movies that I love, but I have never felt discriminated against because of that his english is a little broken yeah, but get you. you get the idea behind it but i did i did a little bit of digging because um harada wasn't responding to everything this guy said and this guy is really just mad that his two mains aren't in the game he plays uh bruce and eddie gordo they're not in the game at least right now and he's mad about it it has nothing to do with whether or not there's black characters in tekken because as harada has pointed out and many others there are Okay. What I want to actually draw attention to was something Harada said because people were talking about stereo because it was a huge conversation. Conversation at the people were talking about stereotypes. 
And um, someone brought up that they, they didn't like the Native American stereotypes in Tekken games. And there's been a lot, it was a lot of mixed, there wasn't just every Native American person was like, oh, I hate them too. No, that was not the case. But uh, Harada actually had an interest, he wanted to ask people, how should Tekken convey the ethnicities of characters? Especially since most people who are upset about the way that Native Americans are depicted in Tekken games is that, you know, they usually have like the feather or the headdress and they're like, well, modern Native Americans, they dress like this. And it's always extremely uh, modern, just regular clothing, kind of, jeans, yeah. t-shirt, you know, maybe it's a cardigan. Oh, like, it kind of blends in. And what Harada, ah, don't you turn off on me. Okay, good. Still up. Harada actually brought something to the table that I'd never thought about. So he said, arcade games require you to insert coins and then to move on to gameplay within seconds. Fighting games in particular need to convey the character's personality and charm within a limited amount of time. This is a big difference from designing game characters around narratives, games where narratives are important and can take their time and show the character's identity. So how does, how does a fighting game quickly convey to you who this character is and why you should like them when you have to be able to insert your money, select your character and start fighting within like a minute. Oh, less. Yeah, yeah. Really less. Okay. So, and I'm assuming that people probably being Twitter, being Twitter or X or whatever, there was probably so many opinions flying around and people were, some people probably heavily agree with what he said. Some people probably called him out and were saying like, this is, Mm-hmm. You're wrong. What do you know? It's it's, it's all in there. I'm going to link the, the, the thread in, in the uh, description of the video so you guys can check it out. There's actually, you, I recommend reading Harada's tweets. Maybe not everyone else's stuff. Yeah. Because just- for some reason, I don't know why, but he really, appro- he approaches for this conversation really honestly and in has lots faith. of, yeah, good faith and lots of like nuggets of like knowledge about gaming, ga- gaming and game design that I'd never thought about before. Yeah, okay, where to start? I have plenty of opinions. First of all, I fucking hate Twitter. Yeah, it's tw- like my Twitter least is a favorite cesspool. site ever. It's a cesspool. It's terrible. Twitter I X still would same. strongly suggest anybody who's on there limit your use of it or get off entirely. I really don't like the place. I think it's for it's partly because of things like this where you know people can just kind of say any old thing, yeah. just be angry or like kind of just make random accusations and just like kind of call for someone's head, right? And in this case, um, you know, a game developer is engaging in good faith, which is a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like trying to actually sort of explain their angle and get feedback. And that's like fine. I just think like Twitter in general is not a great place for actual meaningful discussion. And like honestly, I think creators and creatives probably just should not really deal with Twitter. Deal I mean, if Twitter that's much, how you yeah. grow your audience, fine. But do not engage in that space. <laughs> because I think that people, like, like this guy is like, the reason they haven't added my favorite main is because Tekken is racist and blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, you know that's not a good faith argument. That's just someone who's angry, salty, or whatever. BS. But the thing is, like, as, you know, the lead designer, a creator, a developer, whatever, like, you kind of, you always have to be, like, professional about it and kind of try to, like, meet them where they're at and be, like, respectful about it. But the honest truth is this is a... Like, just some random fucking person on the internet being an idiot. Yeah. And there's plenty of them. And I kind of hate seeing, like, that people will... Because this happens in every community. Like, people... It's it's rough. But I'm, anyways, let's skip to the main thing that he said here. 
I think he's 100% right. Um, he is in um, Harada. Is right that, like, if it when it comes to, like, depicting characters in these fighting games, I, I don't even play a lot of fighting games, but I've always, always, always in my mind's eye seen them as games where characters are depicted as, you know, they're always over the top. Mm-hmm. Street Fighter's like that. Tekken's like that. If anything, the most tame game is like maybe Mortal Kombat. And even they, they still have a look and feel to them. I feel like they've t- they've toned it down in recent years. But yeah, like I think he's right. I mean, like when you, when the goal is to kind of quickly convey what a character is about and like what mm-hmm. they're like, you kind of have to be a little over the top. And I don't think that it's like a racist representation of the characters. Yeah, I think I it's mean, just like, how do you, you know, do you want to play as a bunch of people that are just like wearing a, t-shirt and jeans and everyone's just wearing that and they all just kind of have a, a, a it can be white or black but it's like a plain hairstyle t-shirt and jeans then who would you pick like when, so the, me, when the character select screen it's up there for the 30 arcade, seconds you know it's like it's, it's barely up there so i'm like yeah i think that that's totally because i mean yeah. when you think about it because i've played a lot of fighting games never good at them but i love playing them and on that character select screen all the characters have to compete with one another for your click and in games like Tekken, the culture, they put so much time into designing and giving backstories to these characters. You can't read their backstory. You can't read about their motivations. How can we display that for you to, so you can see? You can just actively see what this character is. If we want you to know this character represents like a people that are similar to you or like you, uh, you're going to have to use some visual representations. That's just the long and short of it. And yeah. this actually stuck out to me because I, um, I've i been annoyed with st- like stereotypes in video games in the past. But, at that, but this was like a kind of an eye-opening example of why like, st- like visual stereotypes have been used, in, especially in, in fighting games, because they don't have long to get your attention. We want you to know that this is like a Brazilian character who f- uses capoeira. How do we how do we make you know that? He he literally or not literally, he practically wears a Brazilian flag on his body. Like Yeah, like you have to. It has to be I mean there's also a um in like art and character design there's kind of this principle called like the silhouette test where you know like if you were to take the silhouette of like some of your most iconic like video game characters you would recognize them. Mm-hmm. Like there's a reason that like Cloud holds his sword the way he does in the promo art. It's because if you were to black it out and just make it a silhouette, you would know that's Cloud. You, yeah, you see like that Buster sword, you yeah, know. You, you see the, the Buster sword, it's that way he holds it and that Hand hairstyle. Up, yeah, and he has a thing. And the same goes for like a character like, say, Sonic the Hedgehog, right? Yeah. If you take the silhouette of him, you're not mistaking him for anyone else. And the best designed characters are the ones where if you were to like just view their silhouette, you can still kind of know. It's striking. You know kind of what they're about. And I think it's a harder part for fighting games is that a lot of people are just sort of middle-aged looking men or whatever, just that are, they, they all can kind of run together. So you like have to make characters have like in street fighter, Chumley's fighting pose, for instance, right? Like kind of the fault stance she's like mm-hmm. really known for, or like reuse or something. You kind of know it partly because like it stands out as a silhouette. Like, you're not going to mistake Chun-Li for anyone else just by that alone. Right. And so I think he raises a really great point here. I hate that it's to an audience of people who, like on Twitter, where they probably won't all really 
view that in good faith. There's going to be probably someone who's just like, well, it's still it's racist, and you guys are all terrible. Once again, guys, I do not recommend reading that guy's suite specifically because he is not arguing in good faith. He doesn't make any good points. He just kind of wastes everyone's time. But yeah, that's that's my whole spiel on it. I know um, people are. I don't like Twitter very much. Like, but I but it makes sense to me. Um, you want to make you making characters that just are visually striking enough where I don't need to read this character's backstory. I get the gist of it, and you click because yeah, and it works exactly. You're in the arcade. You don't have time to like learn their whole backstory. You just want to pick a character that kind of looks cool to you or you resonate just a little bit immediately like, with, and then you know, play. Um, Leroy in Tekken, he's an old black guy, but he's got like a chain on. He has this kind of a kung fu stance. That's all I need. That's all I got. You know what? Mm-hmm. I looked at it real quick. Click. I already know what I'm doing. You see a guy in like a wrestling leotard and a jaguar mask, and it's like, I think yeah. I see what's going on. Yeah, here. you get it. Click, you you, you, you quickly know? understand. So it reminds me also of like the Masahiro Sakurai videos, like on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I know like some people watch those. I watch them a lot. Um, follow that channel, by the way, Masahiro Sakurai on designing games. It's just a lot of little small nuggets of insight into like the game design process. Not just like not just in the angle of like. Oh, you should just have more of this in your game or that in your game, or I hate that my main's not. But it's like the challenges of kind of making your game visually striking or quickly mm-hmm. conveying information to players in a limited amount of time, or how do you design a tutorial that quickly teaches people what they want to know without it just being like a blurb of loads of text and like pausing the game every five seconds to show them how to do something, right? Like kind of the trials of dealing with like difficulty and, right. and so, yeah. Okay, well, I've got um, a couple more stories. I'll run through them fairly quickly so that we don't run, like, too long here because I'm getting hungry. (laughs) Um, The Mickey Mouse copyright expired. Oh, my gosh. I know people have seen this. So Mickey Mouse copyright expiration inspires horror movies, video games, and memes. So, yeah, after um, 95 years of copyright protection, uh, Mickey Mouse is now in the public domain. So um, at least early versions of Mickey Mouse. So um, non-Disney creators can now use them in their own for-profit works. That means if you're a creative and you're designing a game or a movie or a show or whatever, um, independent video game creators and film directors have announced two horror movies and a video game featuring the character, and memes, of course, are spreading online showing Mickey in absurd and sometimes inappropriate scenes, including nautical accidents and even terrorist attacks. I've seen Steamboat Willie's Willie a few too many times. Yeah, 1928's Steamboat Willie and Plain Crazy were the first two Walt Disney animation releases to feature Mickey and Minnie Mouse. Uh, so the characters were first protected under U.S. copyright for 50 years, then Disney campaigned and received extensions. But as Disney's grip on the intellectual property rights surrounding the earliest version <coughs> have come to an end, carriers have poked fun at the numerous possibilities. So, um, pretty cool. I've seen a few of these memes. A few are very... I don't know um, if cool was the word for it. I mean, there's some cool things, and there's some also, like, inappropriate things. I haven't seen a cool thing yet. Most of it's a little bit unhinged, yes. I saw Mickey Mouse Demon Hunters being made as a comic book. I Okay, so one thing I wanted to focus on with this, actually, is that it's, um... Like, that things can kind of fall into the public domain after a while. Mm-hmm. Like, the, eventually everything will like be within the public domain so there will come a time when like you'll be able to show i guess like luke skywalker in your own works which is like crazy to think about it won't even maybe even be like in our lifetimes i'm sure that they're gonna ensure they extend that 
as far as they can. But like, I think that's kind of a cool thing. So I have a question. So public domain. That's but that's a that's an American thing, right? What a, works that aren't American, they don't fall into public domain, do they? Not an expert on it. Don't know. Mm-hmm. Someone in the comments probably does, but um, yeah, I mean. I don't know. I thought it was kind of a cool thing to bring up. uh, I'm not even like, I really don't know anything about like Mickey Mouse, like outside of what everyone knows. I mean, there's not much to know about those old Mickey cartoons. They were just simple entertainment. Um, What I don't, a lot of people are kind of memeing. I don't care for the aggressive, um, like for profit use of the Mickey Mouse image because you didn't make that. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't. That's what I, I can't really wrap my head around the rush to try and make money off Mickey Mouse. I'm gonna reimagine Mickey Mouse as an astronaut or whatever, and it's like, why don't you just make your work about some astronaut? Why did you have to? That's use... an interesting angle on it, actually, because I so I, I think you have a good point. I know a lot of people are obviously kind of Disney has a reputation, right? They even mentioned this article. Um, you know, people have riffed on Disney's reputation for tight brand control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have also been very aggressive in, like, lobbying to extend their copyright, like, extend right. general copyright law and stuff like that for, like, years and years and years and years and years. So I get why this kind of feels like a sticking it to the man sort of thing. And, and I get it. I know I am I am by no means, like, saying, like, Disney's the world's best company. I know they're they're not. But I do think that you have a point. Like it's, it's fun to maybe use Dis- like Mickey Mouse in like a little fun indie game or something kind of silly, whatever. But I do think that it people should focus more on kind of creating your own thing. Yeah. Like not that Mickey Mouse can't be creatively used for some fun, but like if you truly are like a creative, mm-hmm. you know, and you want to make something, I think that you should try to focus on doing a thing that's like original yourself yeah your own original thing i mean it's not like mickey i mean maybe mickey mouse has hit this point where it's considered folklore i don't know because you know people everyone's everyone makes stories about you know the Grimm's fairy tales people have made multiple iterations of cinderella snow white little red riding hood it's it's a free uh it's free recognizability for your project and right. If something is based on Cinderella, something's based on Mickey Mouse, mm-hmm. you automatically have a little bit more of the public's attention by default than if you make your own original character. So that is true. I mean, and then, but Disney spun off their characters. I'm a, a great example. I think is um, you ever see a Darkwing Duck? I've heard of it. Uh, it's like a Donald Duck thing. Yeah. Oh, it's like sim. It's similar to like it's kind of like a spinoff of Donald Duck in a way. It's not Donald, but it's Darkwing Duck and. Darkwing Blast. <laughs> Darkwing Blast. The, uh, I think when you're spinning off, like, a creative work, I, mean, I don't know, it feels the yeah. creator themselves, or at least the owner, should be the one spinning them off. If someone else were to try and make, like, Darkwing Mickey, because now that, these, now that Mickey's in public domain, they want to make their own version of Mickey, yeah. it doesn't... Have I know, there's something wrong with the feeling of it? I it doesn't feel, yeah. feel like. I think people are what mm. it, a lot of it too is just people are taking their dislike of Disney the company mm-hmm. and kind of just using this as one of the few opportunities that the little guy has to kind of like stick it to the big corporation, I guess in a way. But what are you sticking it to? They made billions off that little mouse, and now yeah. you can maybe make a few hundred. 
Like off your indie game, I don't know. Like, you're not winning anything. It's no, here's one. There's one also little tiny bit I wanted to add to it is that um, not all parts like there are newer iterations of Mickey Mouse that are right. still under copyright, and also the Mickey Mouse voice even is still, I believe, um, under copyright. So <laughs> that that voice, yeah. So I think like you can't. <laughs> Super replicate. I don't know exactly like how that would go, but um, I'm sure someone with AI is already on it. Yeah, so I'm sure they'll have plenty of fun. But yeah, I thought it was kind of a neat little story. Um, it's cool that things can eventually come into the public domain. I think that it's like I don't think it's bad that this is happening, but I, I would I I think you raise a really good point. Actually, I hadn't thought about. It. I was like, yeah, maybe just it, it's fun to maybe riff on them with a few memes and stuff now. But I do hope that more than anything, people are looking to create their own sort of thing in the future. Yeah. Easy for me to say, though. I mean, like, hey, I make a channel off of a card game I didn't make. Like, you know, I, just, I mean, that's playing true. It, so. Okay, last story here is that Twitch is banning implied nudity in latest update to sexual content guidelines. I don't know if you've been following this. No. So Twitch has been kind of going back and forth with the sexual content on the website for... I remember really when the, they made the like uh, there was like Armageddon the first change. I know that there there's been so many things like there's been the hot tub meta thing where that you was, know the people would be in the hot tubs and they would write your name with a marker and this and that and they're riding on a giant banana. But now giant I mean, banana. that's what they, I mean the little blow up hot dogs and pickles and bananas and yeah so Paul's consumed a lot of this kind you know, of or whatever oh I've consumed. I really haven't, no. But, I mean, I know of some of the creators, like, people, they talk about Amaranth, right? I've, like, seen some of her streams. They're not maybe kid-friendly. Oh, you let your sub expire, didn't you? I did. I want to <laughs> renew this month. <laughs> okay, so then they, like, they're, they're just going, like, kind of back and forth on what they are and aren't allowing. Like, they're like, okay, we will allow, like, NSFW content, but only under these, like, guidelines. You have to put it under this category. You have to market yourself. And, like, this is allowed, but that's not allowed, you know, whatever. Well, recently... I know they had like the big thing with the the sensor bar meta. I don't know if you've. I'm kind of I'm annoyed that I kind of missed it. <laughs> okay, like, well yeah, because it's a... not like I would have at least checked it out had I been in the know. Yeah, I think, but I kind of missed it. It kicked off with that with that streamer Morg Pie or Morg P. I don't know how you say it, but she was doing these streams where basically the camera is like cut off right at like kind of just the top of the breast. So she's nude or implied to be nude, but, like, you don't see anything, and so, um, but it's so heavily implied, and she's kind of just standing there smiling and bouncing around, kind of just, like, looking at you, and it's, you know, some 13-year-old And the whole time, you're standing at the bottom of the screen, like... Yeah, exactly, like, that's kind of the, that's the idea, and so people were pretty upset with that, and Twitch, I guess, sort of clarified their stance on it with just them saying, like, yeah, that's fine, just this and that, and so then like, they they kind of so god there's so many steps in this because like there's so many little things have happened they've backtracked on so many things they were like yeah you guys can do that and like you can post like nsfw art and all as long as it's like artistic in nature so then some artists came on they're like okay i'm gonna draw my nsfw fan art and characters and stuff like that then a lot of those people got banned because twitch backpedaled that because people were literally drawing the worst right on stream and then they were like, okay, well, that stuff's not allowed. And then also the mature stuff is allowed in these certain categories, but it won't be surfaced on the front page. 
Well, anyways. It doesn't need to be on the front page. People, they're looking for it, you know? So, Twitch has released the latest update to its sexual content guidelines, banning, quote, implied nudity effective immediately. The streaming platform updated its attire policy Wednesday following a meta in which streamers cover themselves with black sensor bars, among other items, or position their camera frames to give viewers the impression that they were partially or fully naked. Twitch chief customer trust officer Angela Hessian wrote in a blog post about the update that even though some streamers participating in the meta correctly labeled their content as having sexual themes, hiding those videos from Twitch's homepage, viewers can still come across suggestive thumbnails while browsing the site. So the new update reads, We don't permit streamers to be fully or partially nude, including exposing genitals or buttocks. Nor do we permit streamers to imply or suggest they are fully or partially nude, including but not limited to covering breasts or genitals with objects or sensor bars. Uh, we do not permit the visible outline of genitals, even when covered. I didn't know people were doing that. That's interesting. Yikes. Um, broadcasting nude or partially nude minors is, of course, always prohibited, regardless of context. Um, streamers who present themselves as women need to cover their nipples and be careful not to expose their underbusts. However, there are no restrictions on cleavage as long as those coverage requirements are met and it is clear the streamer is still wearing clothing. Everyone else needs to cover the area extending from their hips to the bottom of their pelvis and buttocks. Okay, um, so why is the top of the breast okay, but the under part of the breast not okay? Like I have no idea. What's the difference? It's all breast. I mean... What makes one worse than the other? Like, I don't know. Listen, I, okay, so I'm going to approach this from the the angle of my, like, real life. I do not actually use Twitch that much, so I didn't know. I have not, like, followed this very closely. I've you seen, YouTuber. Yeah, I, I YouTube. And on YouTube, like, none of this shit really flies. Like, you wouldn't get it. Unless you go to certain corners of YouTube. Yeah, there's, like, some corners <laughs> of YouTube that I know get pretty pretty dicey. But, like, on Twitch, it's certainly it, it's a lot more lax. Um, I'm not going to lie. I thought Twitch was a gaming site. Like, I really, like, I just, I never... I haven't I thought guess, that in years now. I know, like, I don't use it enough to, to maybe know, like, what's going on. I know, like, now people just, they do their IRL streams, they stream art, they stream cooking, they stream music. And that's, like, all cool. I just didn't, like, I never, like, those streams where it's, like, someone, you know, the camera's, like, right here, or they're wearing the center bar. I always find that in said stream, they're not doing anything. Well, like, they kind of can if they move around too much, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so I guess it's just... I'm always surprised that Twitch is okay with it or that people even watch it. I mean, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, a lot of those types of streams are big money makers for Twitch. I mean, really, I probably, e-girls probably have Twitch been in like a stranglehold. Like, Yeah, and sex sells. Like, like at the end of the day, it's unfortunate. Everybody will kind of deny it or say this or that. But like at the end of the day, like it does seem like if there is something porn adjacent or whatever, mm-hmm. it, it's going to find its way it's to Twitch. find its way out of Twitch or Twitter or whatever social media site and end up on the top page and it will get engagement by human beings. And so, I mean, I'm glad that they're at least trying to kind of draw some lines in the sand. It feels like with Twitch though, they backpedal so gosh darn much. Cause they, cause they can't control their creators and they're, and Twitch has a culture of these provocateurs. They're just, Trying to push the envelope as yeah. far as they Toe can go, line. especially because they get rewarded for it. They get a ban, and they come back, and they have a bigger audience than before. Yeah, they're big because now they, they get headlines, and then your I'm back stream gets like mm-hmm. double the viewers as normal. And I, I think we just like figure out for itself like what sort of site do they want to be? Like, do they want to be the the kind of scandalous insert like, the Pornhub theme kind of uh, track right here? 
Yeah, like, what do they want to be? Like, is it a gaming site? Is it an artistic site? What is artistic? I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But I, I'm not the one, like, these streams aren't for me. Like, I'm not the one watching these. Mm-hmm. So I guess these updates don't. They should make a Twitch after dark website for all of this and just have it somewhere else. Yeah, I'm surprised they haven't like kind of made like a spinoff site that's just like, like separate because clearly they're in too deep to like let go. Like they they make too much money with these like these e girls and all these like risque streams. Like and if you can't let it go, fine, just take it somewhere else or spin it off or something. It's weird to combine that with like the biggest Minecraft streams known to mankind. Yeah, it's like I'm not. I don't really have a problem with the streams. They're, they're not for me. I guess it's just more like I think that Twitch as a site, I didn't think that that was their goal to have. Remember, the last time I used Twitch was aggressively was back back when I played a lot of Overwatch. I would watch a lot of Overwatch streams. Twitch to me was a gaming site. You went there to watch like video games be played. Yeah. Nowadays, um, if I turn on Twitch, it's just because like there's like a VTuber or something. I want to see what they're up to. If they're cooking something, if they're making risque jokes. So, oh, okay. That's yeah. the only reason I'm ever on that site anymore. Yeah. I think like different sites just have like different, in, like you just go to them with different things in mind. Like I, I didn't, I never like, I guess went to Twitch thinking that was like what I was looking for. But like, if I wanted that, there are other sites where that's more readily, like that's what it's providing. So either way, we'll see if these, how these guidelines stick. And if people, Maybe they'll have to backpedal some more. Yeah, will they backpedal? Will they tighten up on something? Who knows? Who knows? Anywho, I think it's time to draw a few cards. This is a longer podcast. It's the first one of the year. We we got to. Yeah, we had so much. I know you guys wanted to hear everything we had to say about the wild, wacky internet. Okay, that's better. That's better. All right, I got. We're going to draw two cards. Remember, guys, you can submit your questions for the pot. In the Google Why form so m- okay, here we go. below. Okay. Here you go. I feel like we've answered one like this before, but we can answer it again. Okay. So, any ideas for a new summoning mechanic? Oh, man, yeah. Um, we have certainly answered this a lot. Yeah, it's come up. Oh, I just came up with one. Okay. So a summoning mechanic where you stack cards on top of each other and the top card has the effects of the cards underneath it. You play too much Digimon. Yes. But I will admit that actually sounds pretty fun. I think that could be really cool, kind of stacking up to make like a big mega monster that has like effects of everything mm-hmm. underneath it. It it feels like that's they've tried that mechanically with Pirelli actually. Oh yeah. Huh? Like if you think about how like the different Pirelli memories literally do give like kind of inherited effects to yeah. the monster, giving it attack, extra effects, different little things. And actually it'll be nightmare on the board state. It would, yeah. Like physically I remember like when Pirelli first came out, there were actually like little joke <laughs> meme posts about like someone who had like 20 materials or something under a Pirelli monster. And, like, this could unironically actually occur, like, in a... Spills into zones. In a normal and... game. Yeah, it's like, spilling into zones and stuff, so... But they have tried that with Pirelli. Yeah. So, it's on Konami's radar. I was gonna say, I mean, like... The only way that I can think of, like, just summoning a monster now that we haven't maybe explored, and we technically still have explored this, is, like, shuffling the monsters into the deck. Like, the materials into the deck. Uh, contact fusion. Which, yeah, contact... Well, contact fusion in general doesn't necessarily do that, but you're thinking of Gladiator Beast specifically. Oh, and Neospatials. Yeah, because, like, 
Thunder Dragons like contact fuse, but they don't. Oh, that's so, true. So you know the there's old the, contact. There's like ritual beast thing. They banish themselves. So I know like that's something. Uh, I think there's some balance there, just because like by not sending the monsters to the grave, by putting them back in the deck, they're far less exploitable. Right. Part of the thing with like link monsters is like, oh, link one, I just link away my thing that searches when it goes to grave, and it immediately kind of gets the combos moving. So if you put the stuff back into the deck, there's something there. I mean, like we've seen contact fusion explore that, or even like TR elements have kind of they yeah. do that to some degree. I also thought maybe like two monsters with matching attack points or something. You do something with them. It doesn't go any further than that. It's part it's of the something. Game, just, yeah. it, you know, it's something. It's I mean, something. it's like Yu-Gi-Oh! doesn't really have any shortage of ways to just turn two monsters into something, and I actually think that the way that links are designed has made it so... It's like, I don't want to say lowered the bar, but it kind of has. To the point where it's just like, well, how, how does it get any... I mean, links, you just... You just they just, they just, they just link up. Yeah, I don't you just know. link like, them up. It's like two link, monsters with different names, or two monsters with different, like just two effect monsters, two non-token effect whatever. monsters. Whatever. Like they, 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 so I mean, it'd be tough to really make it. I, still, I don't know what you do. Like, Who knows? Maybe something with columns. Maybe something with columns. Yeah, I don't know how you do that with the way our game, our boards work now. I'm not sure, but my last opinion I'll throw in is I don't think we actually need one. I agree. I, I think that Yu-Gi-Oh is it's far. We're into far too deep. You have too many. Teaching people, like, so this is kind of separate from the question. I'll be quick, though, is when you interview normal people, the two biggest jumping off points that Yu-Gi-Oh! has had in the past, intro of pendulums, yeah, intro of links. When you, and I'm, this is like, I know that there are people like listening to this and they're like, okay, well, who cares? Those are just filthy, casual, Yu-Gi Boomer trash. But the way that the normal person views Yu-Gi-Oh! is an important thing for, like, yeah. the viability and stuff of the game. And so a lot of people cite Pendulums as, like, oh, that's when they started making monsters into spells. And I ju- that's when I got off the boat, right? Or, like, oh, they made those Link monsters where they, the, the pointy, the arrows, and the, you know, all that. And so, like, it, I just, it was so too weird. much for me. I left. And there's a lot, you'll hear that a lot from people. Yeah. And so I just think, like, if you were to make another summoning thing it's, and it's so, super strange it's got like some arrows and some numbers and some scales and it's half this and half that it's like it'll, it'll be a die it'll be a die the I think the, a die yeah the monster's on a die roll, it's gonna roll it out there it's on a six sided die it just sets in the field so yeah I, I think that would be that might spell even more of a fall off from Yu-Gi-Oh that mm-hmm. they maybe don't want to risk like I have a I've got a kind of like slight conspiracy theory that Konami did have a plan to introduce like a Master Rule 5. And I think that they probably shelved it seeing the reception and like maybe player retention loss. Yeah, the last the two mechanics have not been great. I mean, listen, dude, I think Lynx recently overtook Xyz for most banned monsters or something on the ban Let's list. Go! I mean, we just, like, we've, we've banned so many Link monsters now, it's like... None of them even use their mechanics anymore. They yeah. don't point and stuff. Like the arrow I mean, stuff barely matters. Like, is the if you buy a pack of a uh, link, like if you get like what was that called, like the link brain dual pack? overload, the link brain, yeah, like half that shit's that's banned. Just, half that's gone. <laughs> yeah, and, and the ones that are played today aren't played for their arrows. Access code ODKs you either way. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like you just, you know, so. you're going down. So yeah, I hate to be the bearer of like bad news or like be the Grinch here. But I, I think just don't the Asker knew. The Asker knows we don't need anymore. What you got? Will we ever get physical rush duel? I don't think so. It's not mm. feeling likely, and here's why. They're in duel links. Yeah, they added rush duel to duel links. I think that they did it as a low risk mm-hmm. way of kind of 
releasing Rush Duels kind of into a Western audience or worldwide, you could say. And I think that they are watching carefully to see how it is received and how it's played. Well, I took a gander what you look at? on uh, Twitch the other day and YouTube to see like who is streaming Duel Links. And I saw some people, and you know, obviously Master Duel already sort of cannibalized Duel Links. Just, right. That's not a secret. But in addition to that, the people streaming Duel Links, there were a few. There's even like one kind of larger channel. don't remember the name. None of them are even streaming Rush Duel mode. Right. And I think you could, there's a lot of reasons this could probably be. Any guesses? I mean, what do you. I, I just, mean, you know, I, I paid I pay quite a bit of attention to Rush Duel's implementation in Duel Links. I don't play a lot of Duel Links right now, but that's because I have a bad habit with spending too much money when I play, so I limit myself. I limit myself from the game. If I play the game, I'm going to spend. So, but anyway, uh, Rush Duel's implementation in Duel Links was a bit. It was it was fine, but it's still a bit of a miss. Like one, you're splitting the player base, yeah, because you can't play both modes at the same time. And then the products that they sell, because they sell them in boxes, you have to have separate boxes for Rush Duel and Speed Duels. It's just mm-hmm. how it has to be because the cards aren't interchangeable. But almost more importantly, Rush Duel starts from point zero in their in their game and in their format. When dueling players have been playing Yu-Gi-Oh for years, mm-hmm. they don't actually want to go back to the simplest version of Yu-Gi-Oh, even if it is a new format and a way to play the game. They want to play a more interactive game. They want to play with stronger cards and Rush Duel didn't Russell have that. Kind of reached that yet. Yeah, I was going to say too, I, my understanding of Rush Duel and Duelings is also that like there's not kind of different like game worlds and stuff like how like you know, Duelings has those, like, speed duel, like, turbo duel, you know? Rush duel is a game like that. world. And it, it's kind of, it's its, it's own game world, but because there is not enough variety on offer, that kind of mm-hmm. feels like that might have hurt it some. And then um, uh, then the last thing I want to say is in the, Rush duel has their own ladder for PvP, mm-hmm. and at least when it was implemented, the ladder was shorter. You would reach max rank or king of games rank much faster in Rush duels. And that's kind of fine because of how repetitive the games were because of the smaller card pool. You just you would kind of quickly reach your max rank, and there wasn't much reason to play anymore, at least right. not until they got new cards. And that has been the story with Rush Duels in Duel Links since. Yeah, I think that, if you'll permit me to make a bit of a bold claim, claim I it. think that Konami was afraid that Rush Duel would just fail if they released it in the West. Um, yeah, I'm Because sure. Gasp, you know... It's hard to release a card game. The number one topic on this podcast overall is there are too many card games. Yeah, we should rename the pod. Too many card games. Agreed. And some card games have to kind of die for others to succeed. Some have to lose. Come on, Digimon. Hold on. And I think that when you look at how Yu-Gi-Oh! itself already is, like just kind of the modern TCG, it's doing fine and it's maintaining, but a lot of that is on the back of just it being one of the big three. Mm-hmm. So Yu-Gi-Oh! is allowed to kind of like fumble around and have some bad formats or be expensive or have some underperforming It can products. really just do what it wants. Yeah, some things go wrong, it's fine. But like, would Rush Duel, you know, which admittedly Rush Duel solves a lot of problems that like Yu-Gi-Oh! maybe have, like the complaints people have with Yu-Gi-Oh! But 
I don't know that it on its own has the star power to actually sell a full like kind of game from scratch. And I think Konami I mean, is aware of that. I think they, I think Rush Duels could do that, but I think Konami specifically doesn't want to go through the time and effort it takes to do it. There's I think a lot that goes Rush into Duel that, yeah. was designed to appeal to kids, the new generation, and to older Yu-Gi-Oh players who kind of just love the, the franchise and love the game. The problem is, as and as we've seen, any Yu-Gi-Oh player can tell you right now, Konami has no idea how to market to kids right now. Yeah, Absolutely kids are not no hopping into Yu-Gi-Oh. That's for and sure. Like, the so, people watching Yu-Gi-Oh are millennials and like some Gen Zers, but like that's. I mean, I, there's not even really like an anime airing. Like I know they have that anime on Cartoon Network, but I swear, if you told me it didn't exist, I I believe you. Like it, it it's like you know, like what the the Berenstein Bears or whatever. What is that called? Hmm? What do you mean? The, the effect where it's oh, like... Oh, the Mandela effect? The Mandela. It's like, I feel like if someone told me that Rustle or like Yu-Gi-Oh! 7s or whatever, the anime like wasn't airing for some mm-hmm. reason, I, I'd believe you. The uh, like I just feel like I don't hear about because it. Because today's kids, at least in the West, they're not consuming media in the way that we did when we were children. And Konami and really many companies have absolutely no idea how to reach them. <laughs> the answer is Fortnite, Konami. Fortnite. Get get in Fortnite. Like, come True. on, man. But anyway, they don't really know how to market to these kids. And Rush Duel is supposed to be this kind of two-pronged attack hitting kids and the older demographic. Konami knows the older de- demographic is there, but that's not enough to like yeah. keep a game going. Especially since we already have Yu-Gi- normal Yu-Gi-Oh! to play. So they're like, okay, what's the next best thing we can do? We tried the Switch game. Uh, they did, huh? I mean, and I think that they got out what they put in with that game. I'm it, sorry. It just wasn't I think that, that good they of a game. Not, the game was fine. It was totally functional. I'm not it suggesting it was It just could have been a awful. lot better. It's just that it, it didn't... Yeah. It was not a so, modern game. It, that's true. <laughs> that is true. It, it kind of run on that, runs on that like slightly older-ish engine that they've used for like, those older mm-hmm. Legacy of the Duelist titles and stuff. So will we ever get Physical Rush Duel? I think no. Nah. I remember there was a an, an interview where um, it was like a Japanese interview where like it translated. The guy was like, "Yeah." When asked about that, he's like, "Well, we'll see how Rustle does in Duel Links, and we'll decide from there." He kind of in- insinuated. That. I don't think that he right. said that like straight up. But I think that based on what I've kind of seen of Rustle's and uh, adoption in Duel Links, it's not looking. It doesn't right. feel likely, and that's a shame because I think a lot of the new stuff that they're introducing in Japan. Would do well in the West, yeah. But a lot of the early Rush Duel stuff is just not gonna do it. Also, I apologize for the last like minute or two. My mic was like really far away, so sorry, uh, guys, if you were couldn't hear me. They could hear well. you fine. Uh, more of the story. I don't know that Rush Duels has great chances. Anyway, all right. So if Maxi was banned in Master Duel, what would happen? A what if question. Oh, that's a great question for me. I play loads of it. Yeah. So if there were I, no Maxi, what would I happen? think. Oh God, it's a fucking card. Um, I know people like to meme about Maxi all the time, and there's like this whole like Maxi. It's it's very broken and it's unfair, and it, and it is right. It's a, it's a broken and unfair card. But I think it, this is a like a real case of you won't know what you had until it's gone. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, I mean like if Master Rule banned Maxi, I think the, the proliferation of just Really, really, really long combo decks would be huge. I mean, people people ask this on like Reddit every day and stuff like that with like Droll and Lockbird currently in the TCG. 
Drone Lockbird kind of exists, and it's holding, kind of pinning down decks like Menadium that search a lot and Dark World that search a lot and have, mm-hmm. like, some degenerate FTKs, but they're unreliable because, like, Drone Lockbird ends their turn. Yeah, done. And it kind of fills a somewhat similar role to Max C, and I think that, like, people are beginning to at least clue into the fact that Droll has to exist in these, like, really high combo deck formats because it just, it slows things down and keeps stuff in check. And I think that if Master Duel were to ban Max C, the casual player experience would go from like some people like it some people don't to misery there are there are decks with turns that can go so long on master alec you wouldn't believe timer's going out y'all you wouldn't believe i mean like i feel like we would have more time you get some timeout victories and they pray for that because i'm telling you man like i have gone on master some nights and like when i don't open with hand traps in you know just diamond rank whatever People will play and play and play. And, like, I know it's, like, a joke about the 10-minute turns thing, but it can actually approach that because of just, kind of, the time between, like, interactions and, like, the waiting thing. Like, or just, they've gone through half their deck and they're still going and they're, like, on engine number 16. And it's, like, when does it end? And then it ends and you're dealing with Thunder Dragon Colossus, Barone, other thing, other thing, DPE, Opelosa or something. And it's, like... I find oftentimes when they're playing, if your someone's playing like a real combo deck in Master Duel, they're expecting your max C and either they can negate it or their real plan is to deck you out when you drop it. Yeah. And listen, I know that max C is not the best answer to any of this. I, I've accepted max. It's kind of, it's a bullshit card, right? There's, mm-hmm. It'll steal you some wins. Oh no, a card in a card game stole you a win. Great. But like, I promise that if that, if that thing was gone, I think Master Duel would just... There would be it would really be a miserable time. Yeah, especially because I know people kind of claim that Maxi feels worse in this best of one format. I actually think the absence of Maxi would make that best of one thing really feel like robbery when you lose these coin flips. Wait ten minutes and lose I immediately. Think we would need floodgates even more, but yeah, it, but that doesn't help you going and second. Like it would, it would just. I don't know. That's my thing. It's like, I know Maxi's BS. I just think that, like, it's kind of one of those, it's a martyr for a bigger problem that Yu-Gi-Oh! has hiding behind it. And yeah. the TCG can kind of handle it. There's best two out of three. So you can just accept that you'll lose game one, but game two you can side in your bullshit and then make it to game three and pray. But in in Master Duel, like in best of one, Maxi makes more sense than you probably would give it credit for. Right. So that is my answer. Yeah, cool. I don't know if you have any take on that. I as well, don't. My take it has to be your take. I, I'm not the expert. I'm yeah. not even close to being an expert here. I mean, hey, I'm not. I'm not even calling myself an expert. I'm just saying, like, I know what I think Maxi would or Master would look like without it. In like, my opinion, I'm, I'll defer to the Master so, Duelist. Thank you. I'll give me a lot. Okay, next uh, question. Here we go. What do we got? What's our final? That's not that, a question. That is not a. Can he find one? Is there even one in there? We there no, know. there's definitely there's there's a few. There's a few. Okay. All right, here's one. That looks long. This is kind of a longer one. I'll end this on a long note. How would you change the side deck to be more fair? Would you, for instance, reduce the size of it from 15 cards to, say, 10? Would you only allow it to be used between game one and game two, but not game two and game three? Or would you allow only maybe one copy each of cards in the side deck? Those are just some of the examples. All right, so I, I want to raise a, um, a structural issue with this question. It uh, le- it makes us have to um, assume that the side deck is unfair in general in order to answer this question. Yeah, that's the thing I was going to kind of talk about because I have seen a little bit of discourse about this in the last few months, and I didn't mm-hmm. 
it's kind of in the undercurrents. This isn't like a everyone saying get rid I mean, of the you side have to be thing. fairly competitive to have this take. Yeah. But I have heard some dissenters of the side deck. Mm-hmm. And I'm not claiming to be one. I'm just going to present some of the general arguments that they make. And then we can decide from there, like, how we feel about it. But some people feel that the side deck is too polarizing. Mm-hmm. Especially in the modern day where typically the side deck cards for a matchup are outright blowouts. Right. Now, recently there's been a bit of a clamp down on floodgates, but up until now that was all that was a big part of the side deck thing is like you side in floodgates. You side in Gozen, you side in there can be only one, rivalry, whatever it is. You side in the most painful cards you the can. most painful floodgate for your opponent and they get a guaranteed kind of game to win. There's also the board breakers thing where, you know, most people don't really main deck board breakers, they side them in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you side it in, it's like it's unfair, unresponsible card, dark roller, super poly, sphere mode, blah, 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 blah. And there are some people who also just kind of generally feel that the side deck has gotten a little bit stale because the answers to most decks tend to be about the same things. It's either like board breaker or floodgate, and then that's kind of it. Or like spell trap removal or something. You know what I mean? Like it's just... Yeah. It's not a very exciting concept, like because of things. It's uh, it's very, you know, I'm not so. Uh, I'm master dual pilled. I will admit. Yeah, he, so, he doesn't you know, know what that I, is. What's the side deck? What they, you know, I, I'm so used to playing a lot of master dual. I've obviously played plenty, plenty of the TCG. I've sided a card or two in my day. I've side decked a few I've cards. Also, I've been I've been a pretty heavy sider in my past. I get it, but I made a video the other week about, um, like, how maybe Yu-Gi-Oh! could try out, like, a best-of-one format, just to see. And I know that's, like, a pretty contentious take, but one of the alternative takes that I saw, actually, was Yu-Gi-Oh! shouldn't do best-of-one, but instead they should keep doing best-of-three, but not have side decks. And I thought, Hmm. that was an interesting one. I didn't know that people had that opinion until, you know, just when I did the video, and I think that there's merit to it. Mm-hmm. And here's where the merit comes from in my eyes. We're going to zoom out some and get a little abstract. So um, for the listeners out there who are like, what the hell, Paul, this is crazy. Just hear me out and you can feel free to think I'm a dumbass, whatever. Konami's not consulting me. You for dumbass. So um, <laughs> side decks are pretty cool. And like they let you kind of adapt to difficult matchups. Right. But really, aren't they kind of like a crutch in a way? Some one might argue, like it's a you know. So you and I have this duel, and we've prepared our decks. You right. Know, you, you've made your deck. You've made your preparations. I've made my deck. I've made my preparations, and you beat me in yes, game one, as I should. Well, that's no fair. That was BS that you beat me. You know what? Now that I know what you're playing, here, let me take my side deck. And I'm just going to side in the cards uh, that automatically beat you. I see what you get. And, 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 and in game two, I get to pick to go first this time. I get to. Because, see, you know, even, whether I went first or second in game one, you beat me. Either way. But in game two, I get to pick. I right. get to pick who goes first. And I know, I know exactly what you're playing. So I can, like, pick the floodgate that stop you or the board breaker that stops you or whatever the hand trap. And now I get to put it in. And then we duel. And, like, I win. Ha, ha, I win. I made up for that loss. Ha, ha. Like, see, as it should be, right? This is, I'm, you know, no, I'm I being a you. person here, you know. I mean, a character. Is, like, is that, like, okay, you know? Like, what is that sort of saying about 
my so, like kind of skill as a duelist or like skill as a deck builder and preparer of tournaments. It, there's different. So, it, you know, I, I follow a lot of sports and a lot of like games and whatnot. There's a lot of different ways of handling a competitive environment. Mm-hmm. Most in most competitive situations, we find that multiple iterations of a game evens out like v- external variables. So like externalities will kind of get rubbed down. Yeah. That's why championships um, like best of seven. Yeah. Or whatever. Playoffs in NBA best of seven. Uh, most games want to play best of three, sometimes fives, you know, they, they do multiple iterations to, yeah. to c- try and make it as scale scale based as possible. And then there are games that you don't really have recourse for what your opponent's running. Um, I know in competitive Pokemon, you know, your team is kind of your team. Uh, there's, I, if I remember correctly, you don't use your full team in a, in a VGC match. And like you can yeah, use four, use four, not the whole, but you can then switch in like your other two F, between yeah. rounds or whatever. I guess in a weird way, that's your side in Pokemon. Just those other two Pokemon have to be able to like pick up the slack for whatever beats your current team. Um, and in, in, like, in competitive sports, you have your bench. And that, that's kind of and that's kind of like your side deck in sports when your bet your starters are losing to their starters, and now you have to make decisions and substitutions to try and make a difference. There are even card games just to kind of follow along your example. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you had another. No, keep going. Um, where like I know is it card fight Vanguard where you pre side? There's some card games. I don't know if that's the one, but there's there's card games where you I, like you actually. You pre-side, which I thought was like yeah, kind of I, I, I don't remember what game that was where they pre-sided, but I I, I forgot. But but I know what you're talking thing. about. I guess so. I think every game has an element of like you are able to make adjustments to your strategy. Mm-hmm. Like in a competitive fighting game, you could like change characters or whatever. So that's there. I think Yu-Gi-Oh's big distinguishing thing is just that the side deck is so polarizingly strong. In comparison to a lot of the examples that we've made, and that's obviously subjective. I mean, but like I th- so think about like a basketball game, right? Right. The like, oh, your bench is not as strong as like starters. Yeah, your bench is like the people you have in your starters are generally going to be like your strongest best players. players. And then also, I mean, like I guess between games, and it's not going to be the best example. There's not too many it's changes. Like you, can you make. don't like your entire roster is kind of set. Like. Right. So, I don't know. And Yu-Gi-Oh, I see where people are coming from when they maybe say that the side deck is a bit of, like, cheating a little bit. I get to see your whole thing and then side in exactly what beats you. But you, what one might argue, one might argue, well, okay, what's, that's not really much different than just coming up with a different strategy for game two of the NBA game. Or, or like, you know, just in Smash Brothers, kind of choosing to adapt in a different way. I could counterpick a character the- or a stage. I, I guess it's just, hmm. like... Yu-Gi-Oh, it's just a little more polarizing than that. It's just because the cards are that strong. The cards yeah. in your main deck are pretty strong, too. And the cards in the side deck have to be just as strong to, if not stronger, yeah. to be impactful. And, you know, stronger cards usually have, like, re- they have fall-offs, right? Mm-hmm. That's why we side these cards so they're not in our main deck when they're not useful. Because, you know, Dark Rule No More is a crazy card, but there are matchups where it does nothing. It's, I think, too, a symptom of, like, the polarity of the going first, going second part. Mm-hmm. Where, surprisingly, it's almost, when I think about it, a little bit less about the side deck itself and more about who's getting to go first. 
The mm. fact that I just get to guarantee that I go first in game two and side let accordingly. You, yeah, you get to side accordingly. Because, like, in mm. basketball, right, we... A tip-off. Like, you know, we are still... Or, or like, or Smash, or there's so many things. Okay, in Smash Brothers, if we play game one and Battlefield and platforms help you combo me, right? This little Smash Brothers example. I can counterpick to Final Destination where maybe my character does a little better and, like, your character does better with platform and take the platforms away. So now, like, in the second game, we're going to play in a flat stage. Still, though, like, these are games that are still played concurrently. We still both make decisions at completely the same time. And, like, there's not a my turn, your turn. It's just we are still playing. Same with, like, basketball and most sports. It's... So, I mean, I think, like, in Yu-Gi-Oh!, just the fact that I get to kind of know your strat and go first... And use the things that directly right. counter it. It's just it's so overwhelmingly favorable like, for me. Mate, I think what it gives you is this another type of strategy. Yu-Gi-Oh with side decking. There's a whole meta game to that. But I think it's actually just as viable to have Yu-Gi-Oh without side decking. We would just make we would strategize differently. differently. And I don't think one's really better, better than yeah. another. So when I, I guess look at side decking lets you just use some really crazy cards. Yeah, I think side decking can probably create more like blowout feeling games mm-hmm. where like they feel more just polarized, more like harsh. You know, you just didn't get to play, right? Or whatever. Boy, I'm not gonna lie to you, Paul. When we was when we were practicing for that one uh, YCS, and you kept bringing your um, anti spell fragrances against my pendulums. Yeah, it can create non games we, for sure. We we weren't friends. I think, yeah, I know, I know the feeling, man. I mean, it, that's the thing. Yu Gi Oh has those kind of cards where. It's not a matter of like an adaptation thing. If you flip anti-spell fragrance, pendulums are invalid as a mechanic. Or like if you flip X floodgate and like it kind of does that. So I, I think with like Yu-Gi-Oh, if side say didn't exist at all, and this person had like other suggestions, so I'll, I'll go through them as well. But um, if side say didn't exist at all, then it's all kind of on your deck building. So yeah. you get a game two and a game three, but you have to make different decisions with the main deck that you're still locked into. Maybe you'll make a different inboard. Maybe you'll prioritize different things when you search. Maybe you'll take a more, like, grindy approach. And I think that there's something to be said there. To quickly go through his things, he says, should we reduce the size of the side deck? I don't know that that changes much. I don't think it gets better if you cut down the size of the deck. The cards are still going to be strong. They just won't be able to cover as many th- matchups. Yeah, so maybe that's, like, fine. I guess you could cut it down to 10 cards. It might make a small difference. But it will not change the fact that, like, Anti-spell fragrance shuts down pendulum. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, okay, the second one would be um, only one copy of each card in the side. So there's, like, less reliability of seeing said card. It will be... Hmm. That's something. Uh, like, the cards will still be strong if they show up. They'll be running more... The thing is, but cards have, like, replacements and, like, the kind of, like, worst versions of them. You would just stick in every single applicable card that shuts down that strategy. It won't be... Yeah. won't be, oh, now they won't have as many things. No, they'll just run more... There's, like, more things. And then the final one is only be able to side deck between game one and game two. So after game two... There's something actually there. Yeah, locking you in. Like, yeah, no, now it's all baked in. Yeah, you're locked in. So it's like, when you beat me game one, well, I'm gonna go first in game two and side in the exact floodgates to beat you. Well, now in game three, those are locked in. So, you know, that is interesting. I have to kind of, and now you're going to be getting to still go first, and I'm still locked into using my little like traps that are only useful when I. So there could be something like, there. It's interesting, but then it also um, it kind of puts you in a losing position 
if you lose game one. Yeah, then it makes it that could be pretty miserable. Because like you have to, so you side hard to go second, and now your stuff you have to play with your going second cards going first, and that can just really mess you up. I like that, like as in a current system, um, siding when going into game three can feel really uh, thrilling and exhilarating because mm-hmm. you can actually play a bit of a mind game. So yep. Like, you know, in game two, like, okay, I'm just going to go first, going to side in my floodgates. But what if in game three, instead of going first, you actually choose to go second? Yeah. And you play the mind game where I'm like, oh, he's going to just go first. I'll take out my floodgates, put in my board breakers. Then you choose to make me go first. And now I've bricked with a bunch of, like, board breaker cards and I can't make an opening board. And now you go second, OTK me, and, like, my That's lightning strategy. storms and all that stuff. And so I think that there is something really fun there in the side decking department. So... I don't want to suggest that I'm, like, against side decking, by the way, guys. Like I said at the start, I was just presenting an argument. Too late. And, like, that's kind they're, of... They're going to eat you alive way in the to comments. Say it. So, this is one where I really would love to hear what people have to say about it. Um, Konami ain't doing shit, so... Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking... I'm thinking Konami, they're not changing a thing. Not Konami changing, barely yeah. rocks the boat with this game. But it's always fun to talk about it. Okay. Speaking of talking about it, I think we've talked enough. Yeah, I've talked enough for a lifetime. It's been a great first podcast of the year, but it's been also two and a half hours, and I'm hungry. I gotta go to the bathroom. All right. Well, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode of The Pot of Greed. Like we said, um, leaving positive reviews and comments on the different podcast platforms. And give us more questions for our pod. It's great. And yeah, pot, not pod. Both. Both, yeah. Anyway, we'll see you guys in the next one. Past turn.